Welcome to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast, brought to you by Jay-Z Microphones. For over a decade, Jay-Z Microphones has combined all the critical elements of world-class microphone manufacturing, patented capsule technology, precision electronics, and innovative industrial design. Jay-Z Microphones' deep understanding of technology is informed by their open-minded, innovative approach. Trust us, sound can be glorious. Recording. For more info, please go to jzmike.com. And now your host, Al Levy. Welcome to the URM Podcast. I am Al Levy, and I just want to tell you that this show is brought to you by URM Academy, the world's best education for rock and metal producers. Every month on Nail the Mix, we bring you one of the world's best producers to mix a song from scratch from artists like Diamond God, Meshuga, Periphery, A Day to Remember, Bring Me the Horizon, Opeth, many, many more. And we give you the raw multi-tracks so you can mix along. You'll also get access to MixLab, our collection of bite-sized mixing tutorials, and Portfolio Builder, which are pro-quality multi-tracks that are cleared for use in your portfolio. You can find out more at NailTheMix.com. Before we get into the show, I want to tell you about a brand new product we just launched. The Complete Beginner's Guide to Recording Rock and Metal. It's a short two-hour course hosted by Ryan Fluff Bruce, where he walks you through every single step of the process for recording a complete song from scratch in a simple home studio. If you've been thinking about getting into recording but you weren't sure where to start, this is for you. He gives you a list of exactly which gear that we suggest you get, shows you how to set it all up, then gives you a step-by-step guide to record a guitar, bass, and vocals, and programming MIDI drums everything you need to record an awesome high quality demo with no more than a few hundred dollars worth of gear and just to make sure you have absolutely everything you need the course includes copies of toneforge menace and gain reduction by joey sturgis tones and a virtual drum plugin from drumforge that's over 200 dollars in software included with the course so it's pretty much a no-brainer if that sounds cool to you you can get instant access to the course and all the included plugins at recordingmetalguide.com. All right, welcome to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast. My guest today is Mr. Alex Prieto, an old friend at this point, and uh, he's been on the podcast before, so I'm welcoming him back. But if you don't know who he is, I'll give you a quick bio on him. Alex started out in the Boston music scene being mentored by the legendary Dr. Susan Rogers, who actually was on this podcast a few episodes ago, and she is incredible. It's <laughs> one of the uh, yeah, one of the best episodes of all time. So the fact that he got mentored by her is it says quite a lot. Um, he moved to New York and started working under Dan Corneff and David Bendeth, and then moved to LA. And since then, uh, worked with a Cato RIP, uh, Alex Newport, and most recently, the one and only Colin Britton, who also was on the podcast, um, who is an incredible producer. So, you know. He's worked under some great, great people. He's worked with bands like Pierce the Veil, The Devil Wears Prada, Motionless and White, Basement, Papa Roach, Hands Like Houses, Crown the Empire, Block Party, City and Color, Rob Caggiano from Volbeat and Anthrax, and most recently, A Day to Remember. This is just some cool cred, but 
he did front a house for Trace Bruins' Secret Chiefs 3. And if, you know, those of you who are fans of Mr. Bungle and Faith No More and that whole scene know how fucking cool it is to have done anything with any of their bands and especially Secret Chiefs. Most recently, Alex landed a role working in the sound department for Bob's Burgers on Fox. And on top of all this, as if that list wasn't long enough, he's got a great ass. (laughs) (laughs) So welcome, Alex. Ah, thank you. Welcome back. That was a hell of an intro. Thanks. Thanks. I mean, is any of it not true? Uh, No, it's pretty true. Pretty, pretty, pretty true. I'll take it. I'll take it. Okay, cool. Well, Susan, <laughs> Susan. holy shit. I know. <laughs> holy shit. You, were, you weren't kidding. Um, you told me that she was incredible, and wow, she was incredible. Talking to her was, first of all, uh, I really, really like talking to people smarter than me. Um, and, man, I don't want this to sound bad, but it doesn't happen that often. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I, like, I, don't know how, I don't know how else to say it, because I'm sorry, I'm sorry, but it doesn't, I don't get like that feeling of like, wow, I am overmatched yeah. that often. And she is so smart and so on top of, on top of her research and her game, and it's just so inspiring and enlightening to talk to someone like her, and it's so awesome. And I love that there's people that smart <laughs> advancing the cause. And what's so impressive about her is that normally when you have people that are that high-functioning intelligence, they have a bit of a, an issue kind of relating to other humans, but she's so sensitive to the human condition. It's it's pretty incredible. You know, I always say whatever room she walks into, I bet all the money in my account that she'd be the smartest person in the room. And I, you know, she'll, she laughs at me and, and makes fun of me for saying this, but it's like, I always felt that she had to like put on the Alex filter when she was talking to me, like, I'm going to like kind of put this in a way so you can wrap your, your simple <laughs> Neanderthal level brain around it. Um, but she's just when and when you get her around people of of her ilk, like other scientists and people, you know, functioning at that level, and just let her go. Holy shit, man! The stuff that you know, and it's and it's not just her field; it's 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 science in general. Like she, my buddy does uh, LED tech for Samsung, and and she was talking about specific things. I couldn't. I'm not even going to try to attempt to to repeat. But um, yeah, she's just a, a phenomenal human being. Like I said, super sensitive to humans and artists in general. She loves being around artists because I think her being such a science person, being around these sensitive, creative types, it, it, that you know, pound for pound match her. On makes on, her feel whole. It makes her feel whole. I mean, I, I feel the same way. Being around these hyper creative people. And, and and traveling the path with them, riding the river with them, is such a fulfilling experience. And seeing you know where they're trying to go, it, it's and you know working with someone like Prince, who who I'm sure you know matched her for her scientific level. He you know he matched her on the creative side, and I think that's probably why it was such a amazing relationship between the two of them, and why it lasted so long. Imagine what that. Or just think about what that says about somebody when she was like twenty three or something when when he hired her. Just what does it say when a genius like Prince, who is I guess he has some of the or had some of the highest standards imaginable for 
a musician in terms of who he would work with and how he approached his career. What does it say about the 23-year-old who he hired to wire up all his shit? He must have had utmost confidence. Oh, yeah. He was smart enough to know other... To recognize talent. I think that's how he was able to uh, yeah. to keep his career going. He put people around him that were better at him, better than him at things that he didn't know how to do or didn't want to know how to do. He didn't want to have to worry about certain things. He he just worried about creating the, the work. Uh, you know, it's uh I think that's super important. I think now with the way things are going where one person has to do everything, it's like, "No, nah, man, you got to delegate. You got to find people that are better than you at certain things and be self-aware enough to realize like, no, this, this person is clearly better at this. I'm going to figure out a way to have them in my circle. Well, you know, the music industry for a long time, and I think still, but for a long time put out this myth, the myth of the lone wolf. And it's to the degree sometimes when, say, there's a front man, and the front man gets all the credit. But, you know, I can think of some famous examples like Trent Reznor, for instance. Trent Reznor is known as Nine Inch Nails. And I'm, you know, uh, no knock on Trent Reznor. Uh, obviously, that guy is incredible. But Nine Inch Nails was always Trent plus somebody, I believe. And I forget the guy's name. And uh, that uh, just goes to show how good of a job they did. But I, from everything I ever knew about Nine Inch Nails is Nine Inch Nails was Trent plus very, very close confidence. And then obviously the team that was around them that I guess extended one one ring out from the center. But, you know, even in those situations, it's not just... Trent Reznor. It's, you know, Trent Reznor is the company almost. And I, I don't know any actual lone wolves. I think maybe Andy Sneap was one of the only ones. But even him, I think he had an assistant at one point. I just don't, I just don't believe that anyone can do this, can do anything on their own in this world. You need other people. Um, other people are going to be the ones who decide if you're going to get the job, if you're going to get the money. They're going to decide whether or not to buy whatever product you're going to put out. They're going to decide whether or not you're going to get the chance to do what it is you want to do, whether it's on the level of the consumer or a gatekeeper. And not just that, to really, really do something world-class you have to not just do the thing, whatever it is, like play guitar or be a great producer or make a great product, whatever it is, that's not all there is to it. There's also marketing. There's also networking. There's also logistical stuff. Like There's so much to it. You can't do it all yourself. And so the best thing is to surround yourself with people who are way better than you at those things that you don't want to do. Yeah, even if like you wouldn't get a drink with that person, you need those personality types that you don't have, you know, and that was something kind of Susan put in me. It was like, you know, she had a whole diagram of the like the four or five personalities you need for it to really work and take off. And that was always something that I was aware of. Like, I'm not the guy that's going to go out and sell records and and pitch stuff to radio people and take them out and do all that crap. That's just not my personality. But I know 
a ton of people that I can call that I'm like, yo, I've got this record. What take a listen if you believe in it? What can we do? Or, you know, someone that's as cold as, okay, give me $10,000 a month and we'll get this up on radio and it'll be climbing the charts because I have these relationships with these PDs or, you know, I know the the curators at, at Spotify. And the amount of time that I've spent working in the studio and learning how to put together records, they've been out every night curating these relationships with these people and spending the time. And, and to think that you can make records full time and then also have the relationships that are 100%, man, I don't, it's kind of next to impossible. You're spending, you know, 16 hours a day in the studio. There's no way that you can then go out for three or four hours and, and drink and, and build these relationships with people. Kudos to those who can, but something's got to give. So, you know, have people in your corner that all have the same goal and let them focus on what they do best and delegate. You know, even on the URM front, the the same applies. And, you know, at the very, very beginning, we were the ones teaching all the classes. Like, I did a lot of classes, Joey and Joel did them, you know, and I used to give classes on Creative Live. But as URM developed, well, first of all, we didn't want to make URM about us. Like, it was never supposed to be, like, a guru-like situation. It started out being about us because that's all we could afford, and we were learning how to have an online company and an online school, but it quickly became that we feature the best producers and mixers in the game with the best bands. And I could have kept on teaching, but there's no way that I could have kept on teaching and also run the company into what it's become and what it's still going to become. You can't do everything. There isn't enough time of the day. And not just that, there are producers who are way, way better than I ever was or ever would become Mm -hmm. who love production. They love mixing. I never loved it like that. I love what I do now, but I never, that was, it's way better to have them giving the classes and me helping them put together the classes and me doing everything to make, you know, make shit happen, that's a way, way better use of me than to have me teaching all the classes all the time. Like I did at the beginning because I had to, and it kind of set the bar for how classes should go in this space. But if I was trying to do this all myself, like I know there's some solo operators or quote unquote solo operators who try to do the online education thing, uh, and not just in audio, but like you'll see a lot of solo operators try to do these businesses and they can do okay Mm. but they'll never be like a major company or something they'll never get to that you know that next next level where they're a serious serious organization and it's because one person can't do that much they can't you need a team so what better than to have a team that makes up for your weaknesses yeah, and I and I think that takes a level of being hyper self aware and true and you know, I and I've heard it repeated on the, on on the different podcasts, but you know what a what a weird realization or a harsh at least for me it was uh you know like you said there are going to be better producers than me okay that that's a common like yeah you always look up to people but I'm not the best at teaching this or I'm not the best at doing this, and that takes a certain cut of the jib to sit back and be like well for me it's like. I'm not a top line writer. I can help people, but no, I'd rather call someone in 
and help with that because that's all they focus on. So why wouldn't I? I'm like, I'm going to, for pride's sake, sit there and be like, no, I wrote that. I wrote that. Even if it's not as good, like that's just so fucking counterproductive. Like reach out to people, ask for help, you know, pay people, you know. You know, the pride thing is very interesting because it typically is pride that stops somebody from delegating or bringing in experts, but you're sacrificing the long-term big pride for the short-term little pride. I call it big pride and little pride. (laughs) So for instance, I would take a lot more pride in URM being a massive company who's you know, helping producers all over the world go pro and get become real. Uh, you know, that's and then being considered like, you know, if we were to become the number one online audio school, there's a lot more pride in that, in that monumental achievement than there is in the pride of I taught some of I taught all the classes. Right. That's an intangible revenue of you being going to sleep at night and be like, hmm, I taught all those classes today. I'm going to sleep. But it's just like, yeah, all right. Exactly. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> you no. Know, I mean, again, if that makes you happy and that, and that you know, you can sleep better because you are convinced that that's making this crazy, you taught all the classes, cool. But I, I think big picture, it's a little short sighted. It's very short sighted. Or it's the same as when you're working with a band and, there's two guitar players, one who's better than the other, and the one who's not better won't allow the better guitar player to track his rhythms for him over pride. And that's small pride, you know, as opposed to the big pride of making the best record possible and then your band getting bigger because people recognize what a sick record it is. Like you're trading one for the other. And I understand it. In human nature, we are designed to you know to go for the for what we can have here and now um because i think that we're not we're not as capable of imagining the future as a real thing and especially when you're younger as you get older your ability to understand uh time and long term actually develops uh like the part of your brain that understands that actually physically develops further as you get older um so when you're under 25 that whole part that you know processes long-term consequences isn't even fully developed so i think that there's a point of it where it's maybe it's not even pride maybe it's just your wiring your wiring isn't there yet uh, to totally understand but one of the things that's beautiful about humans, which sets us apart, is that we can transcend our own natures. And so even if it's in our nature to, uh, you know, to go for the here and now uh, and to make right now better that temporary fix, we are capable of seeing into the future and, and recognizing that if we sacrifice a little bit now, that tomorrow might be better. In a much bigger way. Yeah, I know, I know that's. I didn't make that realization until I was twenty-seven, twenty-eight. I'm. Mean, it's the mistake. Well, it doesn't fully develop until you're twenty-five. <laughs> that's exactly. That I mean, that's kind of just reinforcing your point. Just looking at the way things are for myself now versus twenty-five. Oh my god! Just the the pride things that I would like. No, we have to do it this way or have to do it that. And it's just like at the end, it's like no one really cares other than you and the people that are consuming the music don't care. 
Like maybe a handful of people on a forum somewhere will give a shit, but like you're not making music for them. They're not going to buy the record anyway. And uh, again, that's just like a small optic of it, of just looking at music, because that's kind of my the only area of expertise I really have is you know how people respond and react and the inner workings of the, the studio politics and dynamics. But yeah, working with a band that's 19, 20 years old, and there's all this pride shit. And, and, and the biggest thing I notice is with the younger bands is also setting creative limitations on them. Like, no, we don't do that because that's not us. Like that mentality or it, it's just not self-serving at all. And it, it goes back to URM. If you would have just kind of locked yourself in, like lock and step into this certain mindset of like, no, that's not us. That's not you. Or I'm like, how are you going to grow? How do you know what, shoe, you know, how do you know that the shoe fits if you never even fucking try it on? Yeah. And with the animation thing for me, I had, I've spent so long going for the record producing thing and making records and, and all this stuff. And I did this show and I loved it. And, and 25 year old Alex would have said, no, fuck that. Like, I'm not going to do that. That's not chasing the dream. And I, even at 31, 32, when I took the position at Bob's, I was, when I was telling some of these bands that I took it, I was expecting them to be like, oh, you're giving up on the music thing? And that was such a small-minded way. And that was me, my insecurity projecting. Like, not to name drop, but I was talking to Jack from All Time Low, and I said, you know, I got this thing on Bob's, you know, I'm going to take it. And he goes, that's insane. Run at that full speed. And th- and that's not what I was expecting. I was e- expecting like, oh, so you're not going to be really doing music anymore. And it was just like the total opposite from ev- everyone I told. Everyone was like, dude, are, are, are they hiring? Do they need music written? I'll, I'll, I'll work on that show. I love that show. <laughs> and then I ended up just like genuinely enjoying it more than I thought I would. I thought it would be kind of super technical and not creative and it turned out to be the opposite and like i love the people i work with and the environment at at the show is is great and it might be something i pursue more so than making records you know i've turned down some pretty cool offers from hopeless and that you know i was supposed to do produce a new devil wears prada and i had to you know tell them i, I couldn't do it because this Bob's thing was so fulfilling to me in a way that I didn't realize would it would be. And I think you have to kind of be open to those things, even though it's not this like lockstep thing that, over this idea that you've created of yourself. You, you kind of got to be open for opportunities. That being said, if it had been any other show, I don't know if I would have taken it. You know, Well, that idea that you create of yourself is sometimes a really a good thing, but sometimes it can be your undoing. And what I mean is... Oh, absolutely. It, it just takes some really hard, like not like difficult, but like just a really microscopic look at yourself of like what points of this personality or this thing that this person that I want to be is actually beneficial and what part is actually hurting me. Yeah, so I'm going to mention somebody that's controversial. And let me just say before I call this out that uh, this is not related to the dude's uh, speeches or books or anything like that. You know, people are polarized on him, but Jordan Peterson has a, you know, he's a clinical psychologist, so he has a part of his clinical psychology practice is they have an online program called uh, the Future, well, the Self-Authoring Suite. And uh, again, 
just for those of you who might be freaking out or who are fans of his, both of you should just shut the fuck up because this has nothing to do with his books or his speeches or anything like that. I just had to that disclaimer real quick. Just so I'm up to speed. Is he was he's uh, I've seen the name around. Just kind of give me like a footnote. Is he? Uh, I think he's like a conservative voice. No, no, I don't think so. He's uh, he's a philosopher, professor, psychologist who just gives a lot of. You know, he he has some pretty outspoken viewpoints um, that I guess some people could interpret as conservative. um, But he's one of those people that on some things he's conservative and on some things he's not. And sometimes he says really brilliant things and sometimes he says really not so well thought out things. Gotcha. Um, Okay. Amen. And and he triggers people a lot. And, uh, you know, he... Sometimes he says some things that are really, really brilliant, and sometimes he doesn't. Um, but the thing is, he's a very, very intelligent guy, uh, and you know his his practice, the psycho, the his psychological practice is you know several decades old, and uh, that's what I'm referring to here. Uh, and so they have this thing called the self authoring suite, which. Um, is a program online, it's like 15 bucks, where you're supposed to examine yourself very, very deeply, future, present, past. And so, you know, so it's about overcoming, it helps you examine like emotional things that still keep persisting. Okay. Uh, and, you know, to better deal with them. Also, you reevaluate who you are and where you want to be. And you kind of, I, I'm not doing it much justice, but it's a very it's a structured way to take a very long, hard look at yourself. And why I think that that's a good thing to do is because the the image of ourselves that we create at some point in time, like say in our teenage years, isn't necessarily who you still are when you're 25 or 30 or 35 or 40. And it's very, very hard to break out of what you thought you were supposed to be, whether you were doing what, whether you were doing what you thought you were supposed to be and do for yourself or for somebody else, it's very hard to admit that maybe that changed. Like for instance, uh, if when you were 15 you started playing guitar and you wanted to be a rock star, and uh, you got good at guitar and you toured and you did all that stuff, and then you're 30 and you don't want it quite as much. You want other things, but you haven't worked at other things. So you don't really have hard skills. This is the one thing you know how to do, but you don't really want to do it anymore. And I'm saying 30 because that's the age that I've noticed that a lot of people start to wonder if they really want to keep doing music or if they really want to keep being in bands. And I have seen it go both ways. I've seen it where some people are like, yeah, it's not me anymore. They go back to school and they have another, they find another career. However, I've seen other people who clearly the ship has sailed and they're not on it, but they think they can catch up to the ship in their little rowboat and they refuse to see themselves for who they are now. And because it's difficult because they think that they are supposed to be this thing that they built up in their own minds. And they think that how other people see them is this thing. And it's scary. What if they quit music and all their friends and family think they're nuts and 
won't like them anymore? And what if what if everything will fall apart? And who are they without this identity that they have for themselves? But that identity could be causing them to stagnate in their own lives. Uh, and so I think it's very, very important to kind of realign yourself with yourself every so often, every few years. I do it. I actually haven't done self-authoring, but I, I've from... I, I looked at it because I heard about it and uh, I do stuff similar to what it is um, every few years. Every time that there's a big change in my life or I want to, or I have a new set of goals and I really want to get aligned with them, uh, I sit there and I examine everything. The past, what is it about the past that I still hang on to? Like, is there something that happened 10 years ago that if it comes up, I still get pissed? Um, do I, that thing that I said I, I wanted like how often do I really think about it? Like a big one was, and I'm rambling, but and I'll get to my point. But the big one was guitar. Yeah, I, I started playing guitar when I was 13. I don't play guitar anymore. I stopped about three years ago. Uh, somewhere around 25, 26, I started to realize that I don't like guitar the way I used to, and. I saw myself as a guitar player. So, like, that was me. I'm a guitar player. So for a long time, I just kept on going. But I played less and less, and so I was not getting any better. And so my pride in what I did was starting to get less and less. My confidence was starting to get less and less. But I, but I couldn't shake this identity of being a guitar player. And so it was starting to really, really fuck with me because something was totally incongruent between how I saw myself and where I wanted to go. It was just all a big scrambled mess. But like, what does it ultimately boil down to is that it wasn't making you happy. What I wanted at the age of 15 is not what I wanted at the age of 35. And that's okay. What, you know, if you don't have to stick to the same things. You, you, there's no rule that says that just because you worked at something or wanted something that you have to want the same thing forever. And if you're not willing to examine that, you might have a much harder life. In the same way that if you weren't willing to uh, to give this TV thing a shot, uh, which would require you to identify something other than a producer. Because when I met you, that was your thing, 100%. Producer, producer, producer. Um if you hadn't been willing to take that psychological risk of having to re-identify yourself or redefine yourself, you would have never had this opportunity to do something that you love. And I guess it's the same thing with online education. When my friend Finn asked me to come do a class for Creative Live, I thought it was lame. And I only did it for him because he was my friend. And, you know, you should help your friends. He, he was starting this channel and... He didn't know any other producers. And, and so I went to Seattle and I did this class. Mm -hmm. But man, I, this was 2013. I was so not into doing it because I thought uh, I thought it was fucking lame. Um, I never expected that I would fall in love with, with this whole thing. And for everyone listening, you know, I, I really suggest that you take inventory of who you are and where you're at compared to where you were and think about where you want to be and who you want to be and do this every so often because it's important to get aligned and not trick yourself. Yeah. I mean, thankfully, um, I went through therapy in my 20s. Shout out to Dr. Deborah Posner. And Deborah. She, uh, 
And I, I, it's scary, and I, I think it comes, you know, we're in a male-dominated industry. Let's not kid ourselves, and they're very much as a boys' club and showing signs of any type of psychological anything is, you know, portrayed as a sign of weakness. It's just an old thing that's always been there. You know, I'm not bashing it. It's just, it is what it is, and we all know it's there. That's fine. Let's just kind of move forward from it. But she helped me make some realizations about myself and be able to hold the mirror up. And it's fucking terrifying, you know, looking at yourself, what are my strengths, what are my weaknesses, and just being super real and and figuring out what, like, truly makes me happy. And I was wrapping up some records last year, and maybe it was a case of burnout and some other things going on, and they were dream records. You know, just the way we did it, the bands I was working with. But I was coming to the end of it, and I was like, I don't know if I'm getting the same fulfillment I am um, make finishing up these records that... I normally would have the, the, that intangible revenue, the warm, fuzzy feelings. Um, and, and that's super important. Like, yes, money, yes. money in the bank is great. Um, but it's an intangible revenue of like, how does it make you feel at the end of the day as cheesy and not cheesy, but how basic that sounds. And if you're not getting the same fulfillment that you were from doing something at 30, that you were at 25, that's fine. Like that's, that's not, there's nothing wrong with you. Like, don't be scared of it. Maybe, you know, step back, take a look. What What is this saying to me? Kind of pull your head up out of the sand, because we all do it when we're in a record. You have the blinders on, you've got a goal, you're running at it full speed at the detriment of your health and personal relationships. But just, like, step back. If it takes a few weeks, if it takes a few months, if it takes a few years. But, like, you need to figure out, what makes you happy at the stage of life that you're in? Not what makes you what you thought made you happy like five years ago, but what truly makes you happy now? I've had certain personal changes in my life, um, relationship-wise, and, and and there was just I had spent so much of my twenties just working in the studio that I feel like and I'm not the only one here. This isn't a unique situation. I, I missed out on funerals and birthdays and weddings and things people were doing. And I mean, that's the, I've made some great things, but I, I kind of want to experience that a little bit more. And with the Bob's Burgers, I have more time for personal stuff. Um, you know, shit that, you know, it's great to post about on Instagram of all the crap you're working on and how great your life is. But there are some certain things that I just want for me that it's no one else's business why that makes me happy. Uh, it just makes me happy. Like for me, it's mountain biking, which I just got back into again. I'm glad you did. Yeah, because I I remember how much you were into that. Yeah, in my early 20s, I was at the, the downhill parks. But, but whatever, whatever it is for you, if it's fucking knitting, like, and that makes you happy, and you want to like quit making deathcore records to go to like fabric fairs. If if that makes you happy, to like try to incorporate that back into your life. If it makes means maybe diverging from what you've been setting your whole self up for, do it. Um, that being said, if all you want to do is make records, then it, it, it doesn't matter. Do there's, that too. <laughs> there's no, like, you know, there's no, you just have to hold up the mirror. What makes me happy now? Is it sitting on the couch with my girlfriend watching Netflix a couple of nights a week? And I'm just so much happier for it. Long, like that long-term sustainable happiness. Then I'm going to do that because you can post something up and you'll get a thousand likes on it. But then 
you know, it's a quick endorphin kick. It goes away, and then you're just chasing that, and that's not happiness. Because you'll go for three, four weeks, whatever, and not, you know, not getting that, and, and, and then you're back being miserable again. Yeah, it's fleeting. It's so fleeting. And it's <laughs> it's just, fleeting and it's shallow. Yeah, and I, I don't think that's... And I see so much of that chasing out here in, in, in L.A. And, you know, we're the land of, like, <laughs> guys who are still trying to cut it in their 50s. Like, looking... You know, I saw a guy last night at, at, at dinner, like, f- nearly fall out of his Corolla looking like Slash. Jesus Christ. And it was just like, you know... I wish that guy had a friend to be like, dude, maybe it's time to <laughs> to like focus like this, you know. But if <laughs> but then on the flip side of that is him chasing that fucking dream. Is that what brings him happiness? Thinking like I'm going for it. I'm still going for it even if like he's in a, a studio apartment in fucking Burbank, you know. If he's still happy trying to be the next slash, then that is what it is. I just I would have my doubts on it. So, <laughs> I know if I if, if this was a bet, I'd say nah, dude's. Uh- yeah, dude's probably miserable. So in 2010, I was on the final tour with my band, and it was in Europe with Fear Factory and High on Fire. And Jesus. one thing that oh, it was awesome. <laughs> That's a brutal tour. Yeah, I still can't believe they got a Grammy. Yeah, Grammy winning "High on Fire." What? <laughs> Good for that. I know it's so crazy. I know. I not, never would have seen that coming. Yeah, well, at least but, it wasn't Jethro Tull. Yeah, exactly. That was fucking fucked up. <laughs> <laughs> Thirty years later, we're still like, really? Yeah, yeah. This so still so weird that that happened. But so I was on stage, and one thing that a lot of Americans don't realize about touring in Europe is that it's not as great as you think it is at first. You have to build those markets up. It's not like you just go to Europe and it's this mecca for metal bands. It's very expensive to go. Mm-hmm. And they don't accept you right away. Like, first of all, you're an American band, and so you're already at a disadvantage. And second of all, the metal scene does not just accept you. You have to earn that respect. And that's true of metal scenes anywhere in the world. Yeah, I was about to say. But you're at a double disadvantage being a, being an American. But anyways, so this was this tour was after several years of us coming to Europe being like first of five or first of four and you know, do, having the shitty spot and playing in front of a hundred people and things like that. And that's fine. But by that point in time, on that Fear Factory tour, I remember we were playing London. There's 2,000 people pre-sales. There, it was awesome. You know, the, it was crazy crowd and full and, you know, we're, we're doing it. It's finally starting to come together. Like everything we worked for, like we're finally on a cool package and finally playing in front of thousands of people. And you know what? I was so bored at that show. <laughs> I was so bored. Like I was just thinking about going home. Like I, the audio hammer was about to come up. It was about to happen. And I was so over touring like that. I was there on stage at this, it was not a bad show. I mean, the crowd was crazy and it was awesome. Did that rattle your cage a bit or how long did it take you to realize like, I I shouldn't be doing that? um, So I had been wondering, I had been already planting seeds for 
a couple of years to get myself into a different situation, uh, hence the, the audio hammer thing. So was it a conscious effort of kind of, of a bail or was it you doing it kind of subconsciously? Like, why am I setting these things up? Like, I'm supposed to be in a band. I'm supposed to be doing this. What? Like, No, no. It, it was more like uh, I knew that there was an expiration date. Um, I didn't know how over it I was. That's the part that was subconscious. But I did know that my band had an expiration date. I always felt like we were on borrowed time because we got signed way bigger than we ever should have been signed. Mm-hmm. And so I always felt like we were on borrowed time. And when we started on Roadrunner, like I knew, I knew that from the get-go uh, that if we got signed to Roadrunner, we would only make it one record and that we would then be on a smaller label. I also knew that if we signed to Roadrunner, that it would set me up for the future in intangible ways. Because we also had an offer on the deal from Prosthetic, which was a much, uh, yeah. it was a good offer too. It was actually a really good offer, but it was much less uh, brutal. Uh, however, it's arguable that no one would have ever heard about us, that we would have never gone to Europe and never made the connections. And since I knew that either way we go, the band's not going to last forever, should go with a Roadrunner one. And so really from the beginning, I kind of knew that there was a, an expiration date, but there was a time period in 2009 uh, when I went to the hospital because I got swine flu. Um, I've talked about it before, but mm-hmm. it was in there for 10 days and could barely move and was getting, you know, morphine every four hours. And all I could do was sit there and think. Um, and it was just like, how much, you know, when you have 10 days to think and you, you could possibly die. You think about a lot of different things. There's some think scary about, realizations. Yeah. Yeah. And it was just like, you know what? I I have said from the beginning that this thing has an expiration date, but that expiration date feels a lot sooner. Like, I think it'll be here uh, before we know it. And I need to, I need to start working this out now. I need to start figuring this out now. Um, I still went ahead and like tried really, really hard for the band. Like it's not like I stopped working for it, yeah. but like I, I started planting the seeds, and that was in 2009. And then in 2011 is when I went to Audio Hammer. But point being that, yeah. So for a little while, I was already working on getting out of there. But the, I guess the exclamation point at the end of the sentence was that show in London on the last tour where it was like, yeah, I was right. I, I'm over this. Like, this is not for me anymore. I remember being in the vehicle being like, God, what have we wrecked? Like, I'm not, like there was a time period where, and we have wrecked by the way, but uh, there was a time period where the risk was acceptable to me. It was like, this is dangerous to be on the road eight hours a night. Like, eight hours a night, that's a lot of driving. This is risky. Like, this is, I mean, maybe it's not as risky as a soldier or a cop, but it's risky because eight hours on the road is risky. And I'm okay with that. And then there came a point where I'm no longer okay with that. I'm not okay with uh, being unsecured in a van or even a bus uh, eight hours a day. Like, it's not cool. I'm not willing to, 
it's not worth the risk for me anymore. So I started feeling that, and then, yeah, and then being on stage and being bored at what should have been one of the highlights. The crux of the, pre- yeah, that, like, this is what I've been dreaming about since I was 13 in my room. Like, yeah, wanting to tell everyone to fuck off, I'm going to go be this fucking huge thing. And it's so funny how so much of that motivation through our 20s comes from that, like, 13 to 16 especially a lot of people in music and, and metal are probably people that were like picked on, right? So it's this whole much of like middle fingers up, I'm running at this, I'm going to prove all you fuckers wrong. And then you yes. kind of hit 30 and you're like, oh, right. It's true what my mom was saying 20 years ago, they, they, these people don't matter and I've, I've already proven them wrong because I'm gone and I've done this. Well, who, who, who am I proving this to now? 13-year-old Alex that you're still cool? Eh, 13-year-old Alex was a pain in the ass. Or 13-year-old Eyal was probably a pain in the ass, too. I've never met, you know, how often you meet an awesome 13-year-old. <laughs> and the fact is, 13-year-old Alex and Eyal don't exist anymore. No. Those wants and needs are gone now. You have, at 32, I feel closer to 50 than I do 23. And, and I don't mean, like, physically or mentally. It's just more like, okay, I need to prepare for... In what you want for your life. Yeah. Like, I need to prepare for... Just prepare, like, God forbid, there's a couple of weeks where I can't work. I've set up now a certain level of comfort and quality of life that if I, you know, I want to make sure that if I decide to take two weeks off, whether it's health or I want to go to fucking France with my girlfriend, I can do it. And I'm not freaking out. And I can do it pain-free. And that's what's going to make me happy now is going on a vacation or doing a mountain bike trip. Um, And it was probably the same for you. Because I know when I was on a tour bus, every time that goddamn driver hit the rumble strip, I was wide awake. Like, I never slept. I don't know how people, God bless them, I never could sleep on a, on any bus or van. I just was always waiting for a fucking spin out. Well, I guess uh, I have had lifelong insomnia, so the sleep deprivation wasn't a result of the driving. It was a result of just me not being able to sleep. But I will tell you that there was this one time, I'm just going to divert for a second because this is funny, but speaking of, there was this one time I was on tour in Europe and I was thankfully on a bottom bunk, but I got thrown out of the bunk one morning or night or morning, I think, and yeah, I got thrown out of the bunk. So I was like, what is going on? Like, no one else got thrown out. And I hear the driver being like, fuck, 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 oh shit, fuck. (laughs) So, and then I get thrown around a little more. I'm like, what is going on? So I run up there to see, and we're on a mountain in a two-lane road in reverse. And uh, there's cars in front of us who are honking at us, who are trying, you know, coming down the mountain and we are going down the mountain too backwards and uh, what happened was that he tried to get up the mountain and the bus couldn't do it <laughs> so part way through the mountain it just stopped going forward yeah uh, so we again I mean this is one of those wind around the mountain type roads yeah so uh, he couldn't turn it around. So, yeah, we went about 15 miles in reverse down a mountain, two-lane road. Uh, Wondering who put the shit in your pants. Yeah, you know, 
I did. I'm just kidding. I didn't <laughs> shit my pants, but I didn't wake anybody up for it. Uh, I didn't want to cause a panic. I felt like that would that would only make the situation worse. But uh, but that's what I mean by touring is dangerous. I mean, we could have just as easily gone over a mountain if the driver wasn't as good as he was. Uh, and you know that kind of thing happens on tour. Like we know people who have mm-hmm. been killed or severely injured from it. But you know, and but. To your point, that didn't scare me that much, and that didn't stop me. Like that didn't, I that didn't happen. And then me, I started being like, maybe I shouldn't be doing this. Like maybe I should go home. Like none of those thoughts. I thought it was fucking awesome. I was like, this is. I'm going to tell people about this. Yeah, this, this is, is a war so story. Cool. Yeah, I fucking survived that one. But man, now fuck that, fuck that. Yeah, absolutely <laughs> not. No. No, no, no. And so, yeah, at around when I was over it, that if you told me that something like that could happen, I'd be like, I'm not, no, not doing it. Yeah. Just not doing it. <laughs> not, not interested. It's like the, uh, you know, 25 of those risk receptors just fire in. You're like, no, 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 that was, that's, this isn't cool. Like, no. <laughs> I think I was 27, but uh, <laughs> but still, uh, let's change topics here for a second. I want to talk a little bit about Bob's Burgers. Okay. So you're currently working on Bob's Burgers, correct? That's correct. Which is amazing. Can you talk a little bit about the change in workflow and environment and, I guess, requirements between working in audio as a band person? I mean, as a audio producer, engineer for bands versus working in a, full, a team full of people and major budgets and crazy deadlines? Like, Yeah, there, it's, a, it's vastly different. A couple of people have asked me, so what's it like? How would you just, a similar question. I would say it's a low pressure, high stress situation. So there are certain days where it's very relaxed, nothing's going on, but as soon as something hits your inbox, you need to deliver it as soon as possible, which is usually in the next 20 minutes, and it needs to be perfect. There's no, you're on this show, and it's at the top of its game as far as mass-marketed animation goes. There's You can't make mistakes. you got to be at 100%. Um, and, and that kind of comes from my bosses. You know, everything has to be delivered perfectly on time. But you're only expected to do what you're hired for. Obviously, you jump in wherever it's necessary because it really is a team of people doing it. Um, but yeah, you, you, there's just no margin for error. Your deadlines are so tight and there's just so much money on the line and that you just can't really fuck up. So the thing is that people who work with bands um, might be thinking, yeah, but I have deadlines and there's you know, a lot of money on the line, too. Uh, what do you mean? Well, you won't have your door kicked in by the head of animation by Fox. <laughs> like, where's my episode? <laughs> and, you know, so let's look at a band, a, a pretty successful band. They're probably doing 500 to 1,000 cap rooms a night. Um, there's probably 30 to 40 people on a grand scale that are relying on some level of income from that band, whether it's the crew the day-to-day manager, the person who works at the merch company, that all is depending on that revenue to come in, right? With Bob's, you're looking at hundreds to thousands of people that 
are relying on that income as their sole income. Um, so that's just kind of the responsibility there. You don't want to let down the writers. You you don't want to screw up the animators uh, that have to start on these storyboards that have their own deadlines. You've got the guys that do all the the lip sync stuff and the timing before it gets sent to Korea for animation who have hard deadlines. You've got the people at the network whose income rely from that show. I, I mean, that's just looking at it at like a, a, a at a fiscal level. But there's also the legions of fans that expect a new episode on a certain date. You know, the people that run the Bob's Wikipedia, they know more about the show than I think some of the people that work on the show, certainly more than I do, you know, that sit there and catch every little thing. It's just, yeah, there's no, there's not a lot of wiggle room. And especially now that we have other things going on on a grand scale, Lauren Burchard, who runs, who's created Bob's, he literally, his day is managed to the minute. And if that gets off, we're talking millions of dollars can, can are, are in what question. What do you mean now. by manage to the minute? His his schedule of what he has, he's very involved. But now they've structured him so he works on certain things at certain times. He has meetings with, you know, Apple or Fox, Fox now Disney, and he needs to do certain things for each show or for other projects. So from when he gets up to when he goes to bed. His day is packed. You know what I mean? And it could be like five minutes here, and then it'll take exactly 17 minutes to drive there, and then basically, that yeah. That kind of stuff. They're calculating how long it takes for him to get from the record of Bob's back to the studio so they can have a meeting with X amount of people about this certain thing. And like, even if it's in the same building, it's like it's a five minute walk. Yeah, it's almost to that level, you know? So, well, the reason I'm asking is because that's how our Japan tour schedule was. So I've seen I've seen stuff like that in real life. Yeah, and they and he needs to be at the top of his game too because he has to, has to deliver. So if his mind is getting pulled away for from pointless crap or things that he he shouldn't be worried about, that's just a domino effect. You know, if if he doesn't get these certain alts or alts uh, takes that he needs for this episode to go through that aren't the right ones that that could totally slow down production. And then we've got Seymour, our editor. You know, he might have to be there Friday night until midnight to get it delivered to Fox, or God forbid he doesn't get what he needs back from the animation fixes. We have to deliver it to Fox for an air date that Sunday night, and they need it within a certain amount of time. You know, and they're doing rewrites and, and revisions up until the very last second. So it, it really is a razor's edge of of getting it in on time. And let's talk about money real quick without obviously without getting super specific. So when you're working on a record, if you know, if it's a local band and say, you know, say it's like 10 grand or under. Yeah. I mean, there's still a responsibility to not waste their money and not to, you know, to give them something great. And then if you're working with signed bands, I mean, sometimes the budgets get into the hundreds of thousands, but that's rare. I mean, yeah. in general, you're talking about, you know, fifteen to $30,000, maybe a little more. Yeah. You know, the, the further up you go, the less and less bands there are that have that amount of money. So, you know, $50,000 budget, like there's not that many bands 
that can command that hundred thousand dollar budget, even it's less, even fewer. Yeah, yeah, and and that hundred thousand dollar budget though, that's for the record. That's like for the entire project. Like you for TV, that could be like a fraction of the budget for a weekly episode. That's correct. Um, if I, you know, I don't know what the exact number is, but if I told, I can, I, I don't, I. I've signed an NDA, so I really can't talk about yeah, too yeah. much. Yeah, yeah, I understand. Uh, especially the fiscal things, which is really hearsay. There's only maybe 20 people who know what a, the cost of a Bob's episode is. But um, yeah, and that's an all-in, when we're talking labels too, that's an all-in budget usually. So there's no like going to the well and asking for more. So you've got to get it done. Um, yeah, so I guess the point though being that, you know, even if you can't discuss the financial details or whatever, that one episode off of a TV show like that is generally has a higher budget than an entire album that gets done for a label. Exponentially, but that Ex- yeah, that sh- one episode will generate more revenue than probably that band's entire catalog, which That's is right. crazy to think of. You know, a band's 15-year career. Again, we're using that like, mid-level, not even like that 800-cap room a night band, right? Which is a lot of what metal and metalcore is now. Um, Obviously, you've got the Bring Me's and stuff, but yeah, 15-year career and then Bob's. I think, this I can't talk about, but I think they were saying Bob's is like a billion-dollar house now as far as if you look at everything with syndication and merchandising and everything like that, so... So that means that the pressure on you to not fuck up is much higher. Yeah. And it's a pride thing too whether you're doing the $10,000 album or you know working on Bob's is you, your work is 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 a reflection of you obviously so you don't want to fuck up and you know that there's a a line of people around the goddamn city and even to get those budgets the the low records that want to take your job. So why wouldn't you deliver? Why would you make it difficult to work with you? I, I, I don't fully grasp that unless you're just so brilliant that people are willing to deal with you. But, you know, that's rare. That's so rare. And even Prince, you know, like he took care I've you know, my buddy Fluff worked for Prince on top, you know, another person who I'm very, very close with. And he took care of his people. You know, you didn't when you worked for him, you were paid handsomely. Um Everything was taken care of. Susan would say when they were on tour, she'd get to her hotel room. Her bags were there. She'd leave the room, go to work. They'd go to the next ve- next venue, next whatever, and her bags were back in her hotel She just didn't have to think about that. But he paid for that luxury that he, you know, and I, I think that's kind of the difference between music and, and television is a, a, a lot of this stuff is you're kind of on your own. You're very much an island in, in the music world. Um, you, you just got to figure it out and deal with everything yourself. Whereas with Bob's, it's kind of just taken care of, you know, oh, my computer isn't working. Within 15 minutes, you've got IT there fixing your shit because we can't fall behind. You know, what's really, really funny about that? It's so true. Just uh, when thinking about the URM Summit, uh, so, you know, we pay for our speakers. Like, we pay them to speak because we don't want them to half-ass their presentations. So we pay them to speak, we pay the flights, we pay the hotel, pay the transportation to and from the hotel to the airport. Like that's, to me, that seems like the standard thing. Like you should do that. Like why would, how can you invite someone to speak at your event 
and not pay them for it and not you are you expecting them to go out of their own pocket to come speak at your event that's crazy but just about every other music uh audio conference i know of just about they uh they have their speakers pay their own way yeah and that blows my mind but that is that's a good um a good example of what music can be like is uh, you're on your own and a lot of times uh people will not even pay for flights which is insane to me but you know so i feel like in some ways that's way cooler uh that <laughs> that you're part of something where they actually take care of you yeah and and the the, the personal time is pretty valued too uh, uh and this comes from the top uh janelle is the supervising producer on Bob's and 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 Lauren's right hand woman, and uh, she's like, you know, have your private time. We want you to happy to be here. If we, you know, if we're working you to the grindstone and you're not happy to be here, we're not getting the best work, and we can't afford not to get the very best work out of everyone that's here. So, you know, have a private life, enjoy your private time, make sure you get everything done when you're here, but you know, there's not going to be the 11 p.m panicked phone calls. Uh, I was going to say, that's the opposite of of making records, and especially if the band is lodging at your house or you're recording at your house. Yeah. Um, you're expected to work or be on call 24-7. Right. And, and I don't, it's kind of, is that just part of the job description? Is, is that accepted? Uh, and, it, it, and it is. It's part of the culture of being a producer. You can either accept that, or you, or you can fight it and you know turn your phone off at 10 p.m. when you go home, and it's just the way you want to do things. And it's the artists. It's you know there's no right answer, but yeah, I, I do kind of like having my my personal time. That being said, you know I just finished mixing this Bad Omens record, and because I care about the project, it, you know when those guys text me at, at one in the morning about a vocal thing, I'll answer, you know, but. They also show their appreciation, so I, I think you just really have to. It's it's a case by case basis, but I think every single band kind of demands that full. Yeah, the thing is that you can turn your phone off at ten, but there's somebody else who won't. Right, and the thing is to, and I know this from everybody who has had a band lodge with them or work in their house, and I'm saying this because there's a lot of home studios now. Uh, is you if you want to take a day off? I mean, you have every right to take a day off. You have every right to end the session at a certain time, and then be with your family or your girl or whatever. That's you know there you can do that stuff. However, you can also create a really weird vibe between you and the bands you're working with because for some reason they expect you to be on call. They mostly all expect you to be on call for the thing because if they feel like working at 11 and they're full of inspiration and you're there and you're working the record, then why why can't you just come do this thing? Like, You know what I mean? It's an expectation. It's like an unspoken expectation. And I know a lot of producers who are okay with that. That's the thing. And I used to be okay with it. And you know, even now, uh, like I don't work with bands anymore, but there's times where it's midnight and something comes up and a co like a 
I talk to a coworker every once in a while. I mean, I try to go to bed earlier, but um, it can still happen and it doesn't bother me and I still will go for it. But it used to bother me with bands because of the expectation. Right now, there isn't an expectation. Like now it's like we respect each other's hours and all that stuff. And so I'm happy to do the work late if it comes up and needs to be done. But I don't like the expectation, and that's why I don't make a good producer. I think, um, as as for the younger producers that are listening to this, I think it's really important. You you set expectations. Like if you know the band, they're like their time when they're the most productive is between I don't know five p.m. and one a.m. You can set up your schedule to work those hours. Obviously, yes. it's not ideal. But then they also have to understand that you're going to take a day, like you're going to take Sundays or, you know, I also I, I notice it more with the more established bands that they're more respectful of time. Um, my middle of basement record was my anniversary. And I said, hey, guys, in two weeks, I'm taking the weekend off. So if you guys want to schedule some fun shit to do in L.A., let's do it. Um, but this was after, you know, me catering to their schedule. Uh, they were cool and you know they're lovely human beings it was the same with hands i had to take two days for my uh, girlfriend's brother's wedding it's like i'm just letting you guys know you know i'm here to work when you're ready to go so i know that you guys work one to eleven i will be here at 12 30 ready to go you know i'm not going to force you to get here at 9 a.m where i'm done at six and then oh yeah i take these two days off i think that's where things get twisted yeah however there are producers who do the I, I work from nine to six, and if you want to work with me, that's the way it is. However, they've put in the hours already. They worked to that, yeah. They worked up to that point. You know, that's not something that you can start. I mean, I guess if you want to start off your career that way, great. But I, I don't think it's a really smart one. You got to anything creative that you're getting paid for. You, you got to kind of bend a little bit and cater to the artist. We're in a client based. It's a client. You're. You know, you've got to serve them. Hey, everybody. If you're enjoying this podcast, then you should know that it's brought to you by URM Academy. URM Academy's mission is to create the next generation of audio professionals by giving them the inspiration and information to hone their craft and build a career doing what they love. You've probably heard me talk about Nail the Mix before. And if you're a member, you already know how amazing it is. At the beginning of the month, Nail the Mix members get the raw multitracks to a new song by artists like Lamb of God, Opeth, Meshuga, Bring Me the Horizon, Gojira, Asking Alexandria, Machine Head, and Papa Roach, among many, many others. Then at the end of the month, the producer who mixed it comes on and does a live streaming walkthrough of exactly how they mix the song of the album and takes your questions live on the air. You'll also get access to MixLab, our collection of dozens of bite-sized mixing tutorials that cover all the basics, and Portfolio Builder, which is a library of pro-quality multi-tracks cleared for use in your portfolio, so your career will never again be held back by the quality of your source material. And for those who really, really want to step up their game, we have another membership tier called URM Enhanced, which includes everything I already told you about and access to our massive library of fast tracks, which are deep, super detailed courses on intermediate and advanced topics like gain staging, mastering, loan, and so forth. It's over 50 hours of content, and man, let me tell you, this stuff is just insanely detailed. Enhanced members also get access to one-on-one office hours, sessions with us, 
and Mix Rescue, which is where we open up one of your mixes on a live video stream, fix it up, and talk you through exactly what we're doing at every step. If any of that sounds interesting to you, if you're ready to level up your mixing skills and your audio career, head over to urm.academy slash enhanced to find out more. When I was uh, first signed to Roadrunner, uh, we had Colin Richardson uh, mix the first album. <laughs> nice. <laughs> I know. So nice. And this was in 2006. Uh I think he was probably 50 or so around then. Yeah. And I got flown to London for it, you know, and we spent three weeks on the mix. And he was my fucking hero. And I couldn't believe that I hung out with him for three weeks. It was unbelievable. Yeah. But I remember he worked from 10 a.m. till 7 p.m. every day. And he didn't take days off because he didn't want to. The hours were 10 to 7 and that did not change. At 7.15, we'd go out to dinner. He'd buy me dinner. It was really cool. And he'd always show up for breakfast at the exact same time. And the hours were the hours were the hours were the hours. Was well, There probably was something very secure in knowing that, too. Yeah, I loved it. But I asked him if he always did that. And he was like, no, of course not. Earlier in his career, he would do the insane hours. But... As uh, you know, as he got on in age and experience, uh, he was able to dictate the hours. And I can tell you, man, Colin Richardson's schedule—I had no issues with it whatsoever. Like, because it was Colin Richardson, right? But it was also he could probably get more done in nine hours than most people could do in like seventy-two hours of straight work. Well, kind of. Uh, he's actually very uh, slow. Like he was known for taking his time, and I don't mean slow and inefficient, actually. He was actually very efficient. He just takes forever because he wants to make sure that the tone is the best it can possibly be. And until he's sure of it, he's not moving on. And so you could spend three days dialing the kick with him. The thing is, when he's done, the kick is going to be Unbelievable. Right. Like I remember Colin recorded Trivium drums at my house uh, in 2011. Was he still doing the small room thing? or was Because you had a pretty big room there for drums. I had a big room. It was a big room. And uh, it took him three days just to figure out where to put the bass drum. And then another four days to get the bass drum sound. Man, it was glorious when he found it. The whole drum session ended up taking three and a half weeks. Um, it's a long drum session. Yeah, it was only supposed to be a week and a half. <laughs> but uh, so that's kind of how things are with Colin. So only three weeks on my mix was actually really quick. And not to be uh, to, to delve too much into the but with a guy like that when he's when a week and a half turns into three weeks, were you then expected to pay for that extra week and a half, or because it was of his doing that he? was able to maintain the same financial obligation. Oh, no. Roadrunner paid for it. Okay. And not only did they pay for it, but they paid the extra studio time, too, at a $1,200 a day studio. That's great. Yeah. D different times. <laughs> but, uh, you can still demand that, but the label has to have confidence in you that it's going to be worth it in the end. D different times, as in no one in their right mind would do that nowadays for a band that was unproven. 
Right. Yeah. I mean, I can tell you from a recent thing where we had to go a little over and the label was happy to oblige. So over by like 30 grand, a tenth of that, a couple of thousand dollars. But, you know, yeah, this was over by 30 grand on a on a baby band. But you think about when that was going on, you know, a new band would get like 200,000, 250 to, yeah. do, to do their first record, 500 for the second. And depending on results, it could be 750 to a million on the third or fourth. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's a it, bit different now. It's not like you're getting 20, 20 to 25. I mean, fuck, most are now or 10 to 20 for your on an indie label for a, a starting record. Well, we had our budget was 20 for the first one. And then they ended up paying 50 because of that 30 that went to Colin. That was unexpected because uh, someone who did the original mix got fired and then Colin brought it got brought in and so there wasn't that just having him on was not even part of the budget uh but anyways my point just being back to what we were talking about that Colin's schedule was his schedule and there was no arguing about it but he was also Colin Richardson the guy that invented modern metal production sound and who am I to dictate anything to him right however when working with bands as me uh, a producer who was not colin richardson i would have to bend to their schedule often or they'd get weird with me and i know a lot of people that that would happen with so with bob's burgers i think that it's really really awesome that your personal time is respected like so it's like when you're working on the Bob's Burgers stuff it's like they expect 110% and for you to deliver things at their insane standard um because there's millions of dollars on the line and hundreds of people's careers and millions of fans and however when you go home you go home yeah my phone doesn't ring after 5 o'clock on Friday and I don't hear anything until I walk in the door 9am on Monday morning there's a beauty to that there really, really is. Um, I appreciate it. And that's why I come in swinging as much as I can every day. So you said that with uh, hands, I think, that you that's what you were just talking about, how it went over a little bit, and how with them... Uh, it, was, it wasn't hands. I, I don't want to go into which band it was, but... Uh, okay, so there, there was a band that uh, you were just talking about, though, that like you didn't mind taking the 11 p- p.m. phone call. Oh, 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 I got confused. I'm sorry. I thought you were talking about the budgetary thing. It was, it was, bad, it was bad Omens that... Bad Omens. Was, I was on their schedule. Okay, so I was just saying that, like, that's okay if you decide it's okay, but as a as a general way of living your life, always at the behest of other people's schedules, I feel like that can start to get old. It didn't start like that with them, to be honest with you. It started a bit more of a business relationship, and then as we became friends, it, it went both ways. The the kind of doors opened up mm-hmm. as far as communication went. But you know that was as trust was gained, and you know things like that. It was almost like uh, I was. I don't want to say the fifth Beatle with them, but there would be, you know, a lot of conversations with things that normally a mixer doesn't get involved with that we would talk about just because we gained, I gained a ton of respect for them and what their vision was. And I had information that they needed or that they had questions about, and I was happy to, to give it to them, you know, yeah, without any type of, other than just wanting the best for that band. 
Understood. Um, let's switch gears a little bit. I, I want to talk about the technical side of what you do for Bob's, mm-hmm. because I think a lot of our listeners, you know, they have some interest in doing stuff besides just working with bands. Like I, I know there's quite a few people who would love to work in television or in a video field that has audio with it, which is all of them, except for silent movies, but uh, those aren't too big anymore. <laughs> so there's a, you know, I, and I'm interested too. I want to learn a little bit more about it. So, uh, could you walk us through technically what's in a typical day for you? Um, it, it, it changes day to day, which is is nice. But the the basis of what I do is I, I, I pr- primarily focus on the dialogue, um, which is such a crucial part of that show by design. You know, a lot of a couple other like obviously if it's anime, it's all about the crazy explosions and and the sounds, but. With Bob's, it's a very story-driven, narrative-heavy show. And Warren has created it to where it's almost like a conversational show because he came from Dr. Katz and some other things. So let's let's say I'm basis on putting an episode together. They record it live in, th- in three different studios. I'm responsible for them. Putting it all together, making sense of it, um, aligning the audio with reference tracks. So there's a thing called ISDN, which is a high-speed internet line that you have to reserve. Um, it's almost instant across the country, which is pretty crazy. Um, only a few studios have them. So there'll be people in New York, LA, Boston, and occasionally Chicago or, or Las Vegas, depending on who's on that show. And then they'll record the ISDN feeds from, let's just take Boston. They'll record the ISDN feed from Boston. Then I'll get the session from Boston, and then I will line it up with that ISDN line as quick as uh, as closely as I can. Um, and then I'll go through the entire episode, clean it up, and then you know just all the dead space. So I just have the lines, and then in the back in the graveyard kind of area of the session. One thing, real quick, so about the ISDN line. Yeah, it really is that fast. Because well, the reason I'm asking is because I I've done I've tried to do those sessions over the internet where like you know maybe people are listening to your mix and giving mix notes or things like that and it's always weird it's usually about it's like a 10 or 20 millisecond delay so it's like the difference between like the record head and the repro head on a, on a tape machine so you can pretty much have a pretty naturally feeling conversation over ISDN okay um, but you have to reserve I believe you have to reserve them how do the actors stay? I mean, 20 milliseconds isn't that bad. I guess if you're not doing stuff that has to be in phase, like snares, you're not not trying to align snares over an ISDN line in real time. Well, that's why uh, each studio records to their own session. And then I take those three sessions and compile them. So I'll take the Boston record, which is, you know, like a normal mic to pre to computer and I'll line that up with the ISDN and it's close it's pretty much spot on so we're still getting the, the good quality audio it's not like we're actually using the ISDN audio feed from Boston to in the episode so it's just like what we're using Skype for right now on this podcast like for people listening we are recording ourselves locally but we're using Skype to be able to talk. Right. That's exactly right. Um, Just on a grand scale. Right. And instead of using the clap that we did at the top to kind of line things up for your editor, 
it would be like you recording my feed and then using the audio I give you at the end of today and lining it up with that recorded feed. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah. Um, so once everything is phased, as we call it, um, I'll go, like I said, go through and clean everything up. Um, once it's, I've gotten rid of all the dead space and I just have the, the takes, um, I will then go and, and put everything in an order of the episode and kind of just all the takes laid out so the writers and, and my boss can go and pick with the writers and choose what lines they want or what takes of what lines they want. And, and then what? Um, so standard animation is once they've kind of chosen the, ta- chosen the takes, they'll clean up all the dead space and uh, they'll call it, we create what's called a radio play. So they'll pretty much map out the episode as much as they can using just the dialogue and maybe some rough sound effects like a door closing or a gunshot or something. And then they'll usually spit out. So they're putting in what they can, like a door close or gunshot. Is it the final door close or is it like placeholder stuff? Placeholder stuff. I mean, every now and then something will make it. But it's, it's, there's a guy later down the line who's his only job is putting in sound effects. And then they have the... F- so the real Foley. Yeah, stuff. they have the sound effects and then they have a Foley walker who does all that stuff. So two guys will come together and uh, make sure you know that everything looks good. If there's an explosion or a car door or tires squealing, all that stuff gets taken up down the line. Um, yeah, I think usually, don't quote me on this one, maybe when it comes back from color, but we'll get into that. Um, so they create what's called a radio play, which is just uh, as close as they can to a, a real sounding episode. Will get printed out. It's usually you know twenty three to twenty eight minutes long. Um, I, we have very specific deliver guidelines, right around twenty two minutes. So that'll go to everybody: the writers, the producers, the directors, and um, they'll start reviewing it. And right from there, they'll actually start picking alt takes. So they'll do pickups with the actors maybe the next week or in the following two weeks of like, hey, can we get this line better? Can we do this better? So we're constantly revising that radio play. The script's constantly getting rewritten. And this is common with all animation. Um, Once they kind of lock everything in as best as they can at that point, um, things will go over to the storyboard artists and the directors, and they'll start mapping out what the episode's going to look like. Uh, They're called thumbs. They're just kind of rough sketches of the perspective and how they want hands to move and heads to move. Um, Storyboard artists will will take it and kind of fill it out more. And then we kind of do a a rough lock on that. We'll do a screening. And once it's kind of been uh, approved by everyone, um, they'll... uh, the timing guys will take a look at it and let the animators in Korea know where certain things need to be, lip motions at, at the down to the frame, um, how hands need to move, and uh, direct instructions on that. Then they ship everything off, all the files off with the audio, and then we don't see it again for three to six months. Um, obviously, we're still getting... Oh, damn. So it's that far in advance. Yeah, like I... You know, we're doing, we've already done the holiday stuff for next year. So, does it blow your mind? Like, when shows like South Park are like they managed to have something on that was in the news a week ago? I mean, that's, we, we talk about South Park as like that's, that's brilliant the way they're able to do that and, and stay so current. But I think, you know, they work for six months and then 
they're pretty much on a hiatus for six months, just getting their letting their people recuperate. I have a theory too, and uh, I don't know. Maybe you can confirm or deny this that they have alternate versions, and so like if they're if they're going to make fun of a president who just won an election, they're going to have a version of each that they can just insert. I don't know if that's true or not, but then they do stuff that you can't have predicted either. Yeah, I mean, I I couldn't tell you. I know that just from what I've seen, if they're doing a whole episode in a in a week to two weeks. I don't know how the hell they would have time to do, do two different episodes. You know what I mean? Two different versions. I feel like, you know, if someone gets elected on a Wednesday, maybe the following Wednesday that or the in two weeks, they'll have an episode about it, you know? But it's Man, just the amount of work. They're fast. They are so fast. fast. I, but, you know, that shows on, what, it's almost 20th season. I think they just have a crew there that's so dialed in. I know they have like a vocal booth that they do all their ADR and, 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 and records in right there at the studio. So I think they keep everything in-house. I don't think they ship ship out for animation. And the animation is a lot simpler. Um, obviously, you know, for some of the crazy stuff they do. But yeah, I don't think their animation is as detailed as... Uh, as, as Bob's is or, or Family Guy or, or The Simpsons, they can get away with being it, the animation being a little rougher around the edges. I think that's part of the uh, the charm of that show, you know. Got it. The, the one thing, too, is I've seen this in live action shows sometimes, uh, and it just always blows my mind. Like Homeland, I don't know if you've ever seen it, but Homeland would incorporate the news in episodes that would come out like a week or two later. Like, you know, if there's a show about terrorism, uh, that's what it's about. They'll, like, I don't know if you remember the horrible attacks in Paris, but like a few years ago, but they talked about them. Like within within like a week or two, they, like that was in the, in the plot lines that was like, and they were referencing it like, can't, you know, we can't have another Paris and stuff like that. It's just like, God, that is, that's incredible that you're able to move that fast. They must be, I mean, that's just, I mean, you can get it done, but you're paying, you're paying your editors and you're paying your crew to put in those super long days of, of rewrites and and, re, and and recuts and everything like that. So you can do it. It's just if you're willing to pay a guy double time, triple time for him being there 20 hours. I mean, obviously, there's laws for union on, I'm sure that show is, um, where you you have to give your crew like six to eight hours of rest, of off time. Or you, I don't... I. Don't again. Don't quote me. Or it's like one of those things you're paying them, like you're putting their kids through college with in a week level. So you know. So that's another you know kind of looping back to what we were talking about a little earlier. So yeah, your phone doesn't ring past five in general, but if it were to ring past five, you would be handsomely compensated for it, and. Uh, that you know, you don't get handsomely compensated for the phone ringing past five <laughs> when working with bands. No, 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 you don't. But then the, you know, they look at it as like, well, you should be thankful for being able to work with this band, and yeah, that's that's fine too. I mean, you should be thankful for getting to work on a TV show like that too. Oh, I think I I 
somehow captured a unicorn with Bob's. Like I said in the beginning of the podcast, if it was any other show than Bob's, which I was a huge fan of before, um, I don't know if I would have jumped both feet in. It was just, it was kind of the universe. So you wouldn't have done the Full House remake? <laughs> Only if Aunt Becky got me a scholarship. Okay. Yeah, it, it was just like one of those. I'll talk to her. <laughs> Dude, I I, <laughs> I, I, she, I know she, I heard she knows some people. <laughs> I ran into her. It's the most LA thing ever. A couple of years back, I was at a pastry place in Brentwood and, I looked back and there she was sitting and I looked back again and she gave me the like, yeah, it's me. Don't even think about saying anything kind of look. And I was like, yeah, okay. <laughs> was was she with the president of Harvard? <laughs> no, she was with what looked like two other well-to-do, taken care of Brentwood mothers, you know, all probably left in their Range Ro- brand new white Range Rovers. Um, Not surprised. No, no, no. It's definitely a, a, the culture out in that area. Okay, so it comes back. It's six months later. It comes back from the animators. Uh, then it goes to our editors, our, our picture editors, and they kind of go through it and uh, make sure things are, are where they need to be, cut some things out, move them some, move some things around. And then we're still doing ADR pickups. Like, well, we still don't like that line. Um, now that we see it in picture, it could be better. Or we want it this way. So are you working on two episodes at once, like one the current one that you're working on and then the one that came back? I think at the most I'll be working on like four or five episodes. It's kind of calmed down okay. now, now that we're at the end of the season. But it's it's not – I've never been overwhelmed. So like last week – this week I have to put together another episode from scratch and then we have some pickups for another episode. So – They'll go in with like H. John Benjamin and like, hey, we we need we need to get some more takes on like ten lines, so you know, continue putting together my episode. When that ADR comes in, I'll switch over to that, get it prepped, um, just kind of cutting out all the dead space and lining it up with where the line is in the what's called a just our guide audio track, and then yep, send it off to my bosses, and then they'll sit with the writers and pick the of the new takes, the version they want. They'll create an AAF from that new audio and send it to our picture editor. And then he'll go and put the new dialogue into the episode and then that'll go out. Did you just say AIFF? AAF. AAF. Oh, okay. It's just like it locks it to the frame. Ah, okay. So we we can communicate between um, Premiere, Avid, and Pro Tools. Got it. Because our animatics are done in Premiere... I think I don't remember, I, and I don't, you know, I don't want to say too, too much about the process for fear. Yeah, yeah, fair enough. The 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 hand of the the mouse now that we're Disney coming down and, and chopping me in the head. Yeah, yeah, I don't want you to get chopped in the head. Um, so there's a lot of moving pieces, and it seems like quite a complex operation. And this is something that you just got into. Uh, I mean, you didn't just get into it recently, but you you just jumped right in. Did you know? Uh, like uh, that this is how TV works or did like did you learn on the job? I had no idea honestly the process the actual process of my, my friend Adam who's um, been on Bob since I think season one uh, he showed me the ropes and how they kind of do things where I had the skill was the editing ability that you know from working from Dan you know I can make anything sound right. Dan Corneff. Yeah, Dan Corneff. Um, but yeah, it was just... Shout out to Dan Corneff, by uh, the way. Yeah. 
I miss him terribly. Um, Love you, Dan. Yeah, it, it was honestly just the aptitude and comfort within the DAW and seeing, okay, that's how they have to do it. And then just kind of like plodding along as much as I could and, and practicing, I guess, editing. This confirms something that I tell people all the time. URM listeners who want to get jobs in the industry, pay attention. Um, I've uh, always maintained that if you're looking for an internship, like I know this isn't an internship, but but I'll I'll tie the two together in a second, so just go with me. An internship, uh, your skills are less important than your personality because... Absolutely. Yeah, because you can learn skills. It's assumed, actually, that if you're going for an internship, you're obviously not going to be as skilled as the engineer and the producer or the mixer because... Otherwise, you wouldn't be go- the intern. You wouldn't be going for that job. You'd be going for their job. So it's assumed that your skills aren't totally there. And if your personality is right, people will teach you, will show you the skills that they think you can pick it up fast. And, you know, the same applies uh, when if you're going to go engineer or get another a job like you did. If you have the you know, the basics that someone's looking for. So obviously you won it because your audio editing skills are world-class. However, um, in addition to that, that you had a friend and they had to like your vibe. I know that you are into comedy and, um, you know, we've gone to comedy show together before. Mm-hmm. Like we've talked about comedy a lot. Like, you know, comedy. And actually, in Metal Beard Club, which we did together, which we'll talk about in a little bit, like you wrote all the copy, and it was always <laughs> hilarious. So, like you have, you understand comedy, kind of, kind of the way that. No, sorry, I still can't believe some of the shit you and you guys let me get away with with Metal Beard Club. <laughs> Man, it was hilarious. Well, it's kind of the same way that I say that a drum editor needs to understand drums, like in a like a drummer. Uh, you can't just understand beat detective. You have to understand drums. Uh, you understand comedy, so I feel like even if you didn't have all the skills, is like say that someone wanted to come engineer for me, and I was a producer, but they didn't know Beat Detective. However, they were really smart, they were really cool, and they played drums. I would be fairly confident that I could teach them how to edit right. Right. Um, so I feel like you knew comedy. Obviously, you're cool to hang out with, and you're very, very good at editing audio. So it was obvious that with a little bit of effort from their part, they could show you the ropes and you could pick it up. So you didn't go in there with like five years experience working on TV shows. No, I beat out a bunch of people that had way more experience than I did. But it was it was funny. My other boss, Matt, he was just like, yeah, one guy came in and he was wearing too much cologne and was way too quick to show me all the shit he could do. And I just didn't want to hear it. And I didn't want to smell him. <laughs> <laughs> oh, shit. All right. This and this is a dude who probably um, has worked on a bunch of TV shows. Oh God, Matt has worked. I mean, he was Quentin Tarantino. No, no, no. I don't mean I don't mean the boss. I mean the guy who didn't get the job. Oh, uh, yeah. I I don't know the guy's history too much, but yeah, no. He he had worked on a bunch of shit. Okay, so he was, he had more experience than you, but he smelled bad. <laughs> well, he smelled too good. <laughs> you Which is to let, bad. Yeah, exactly. You want to let everyone know he uh, he had expensive cologne. Um. And what also helped, too, 
on the other show, Paradise PD, that I worked on was my timing. Um, just from editing so much music, I understood what they said when we need a beat here before this joke or put some breath in or the timing of this needs to be this way or that way. And I understood like how things should feel. And I think that was an advantage too was because of all the music editing and, and how musical I, I try to make my edits and the music background and I was, the timing of it is so important. If anyone, you know, everyone says comedic timing is like 90% of it, you know, where a joke has to land is super, super important. And that's really big to Lauren and how he wants. I haven't like fully done an episode of Bob's yet because there's two guys that are there that are just hyper talented, have been with Lauren since day one. But that's something that all these guys that I've met, these showrunners, is the way the show feels, the way the the characters interact with each other, the way they're talking. And, and I think that's a really big, what makes these picture editor, or the, you know, edit, animation editors or ed, ed, editing for film so important is the, the, the timing of it. So it's not just having the technical skills. And I think that I think that's what I'm really trying to key in on. It's yeah. not just the technical skills. Exactly the same as editing vocals for, uh, for a song. Like, if you don't understand what good vocals are supposed to sound like or what or how pitches work or how harmonies work, if you, like, don't have it, if that doesn't make sense to you on a deep level, you're not going to do a good job editing vocals, even if you know what every parameter in Melodyne or Autotune does. And same with editing drums. If you can't feel drums the way they're supposed to be felt, and you don't understand what it is that a drummer's trying to do, and you don't know uh, what the little, what drummer's tendencies are, and or what's even realistic or unrealistic, then you could have all the macros and key commands down, and you know, and you could know everything about Beat Detective and Elastic Audio or. You know, you could be a fucking ninja, but your edits are going to suck because you don't understand music. And it sounds like the same thing. It's like, I think, I bet you that the understanding of comedy and comedic timing is a lot more rare than people who know how to do the commands. Oh, yeah. And like Adam, he was a drummer in a, in a pretty big punk band for years, toured the world. And I think that's why his timing is so good and why Lauren loves him so much. Matt's a drummer too. The same thing, you know. They have the music backgrounds, and uh, they know how it should feel. Uh, but I can tell you, God, how many times Dan would send me back to my room, and be like, "No, this sounds too perfect. It sounds robotic." Corneff. Yeah, Corneff. Recut this. Recut this. This is re-edit. This. We're, you know, I want superhuman, not robot. That's a big difference. It's it's again, it's that last two percent. And with anything, it's done at a super high level. There's tons of people that can do the 98, but what makes it the last two is that the gray area, that uh, that subjective decision making, like coming out of a fill. Should the drummer rush on that first snare hit of the chorus or that first kick hit of this chorus? You know, like maybe it'll make push the whole thing and make the the chorus jump a little bit more. I want to adjust something you just said. Um, so you said a lot of people can do the 98. I disagree. I think n- not that many people can do the 80 or the 
and then you get a small few who can do like up to the 98% and then an even smaller, smaller group who can do the 2%. And because I was just thinking about something, I I watched a YouTube video yesterday uh, about actors talking about what it takes to make it in Hollywood. And oh God! <laughs> the well, with some pretty serious like veterans, um, and the one the opening line was, "You may think you're a one in a million type person, but what that means is that there's seven of you in New York, and only one of you can get the gig. Yeah. So you have to be a one in seven million type person." Uh, and you know, and then really, it's more like one in a hundred million, really, if you're going to be a star. Right. So, so really, the the kind of person you have to be to be good enough, or to be the right kind of person for certain gigs. I mean, it's not one in a hundred million for the job you do, but to be good at editing in the first place, uh, but then understand comedy and then understand software and then also be able to hang out and be cool, you know, not wear the cologne. That's a very, very small group of people. And I I think I've also been genetically gifted. I think people forget about that. Like I've always, even to when I was like three years old, I was playing drums along with records and that's just kind of I've always had a sense of rhythm. Um, I think sometimes we forget about that. Sometimes it's just encoded in, in, in your genes. I think you mm-hmm. just have to nurture it. Um, and then we're, again, the self-evaluation, like what's my skill set? Like I know I'm not the flashiest bass player, you know what I mean? But a lot of times I'll play on some of these records or a part and they'll. it just sounds better because my timing's a little bit better and I know how to play for recording and I've listened to enough that I know what it's supposed to sound like. So I've just, I've also been gifted in the, in the, in the gene realm. Maybe it's the half Latin side of me that I've just, I've gotten the timing thing really locked in for the most part, like feeling when something should be behind the beat, when should it push ahead of the beat? And uh, yeah, just shit like that. Well, yeah. Which makes you even more of a rare find. But I guess you can't control, you know, what gifts you're born with, though there are a lot of things you can develop with effort. I know a lot of people who have just worked really hard to develop um, certain skills and abilities and who have great careers. I mean, maybe... I th- so I do think that in order to be a superstar uh, at something, you need to... It needs to be a combination. And we actually talked about this in Susan's episode a lot. Is It's a combination of things. It's obviously talent. Like there's, so it's a, but a combination of talent along with the luck, along with your personality, along with, you know, all these different things put together. But you can't take the talent out of the equation if you want to be a superstar. However, if you want to just, you know, have a great career. As long as you don't have inverse talent, you know, with some hard work, you can make shit work. You can make it happen. Um, yeah. As long as your personality is not fucked up. And not, not everyone's going to be a superstar. There's going to be the no. the blue collar audio guys. You know, which is which is fine. Again, you just have to define 
you know, if your whole dream is to be a superstar audio guy and you're just not equipped to do that, you know, maybe take a look at your situation and, and figure out a way to be happy and still do audio. I mean, I don't think I'll ever be a Mutt Lang. Like, I don't, who will? You've got one. Um, or, you know, even someone like Colin, whose songwriting ability is far surpassed mine, will ever be. I'm not, I know I'm not going to be that type of audio person, which is fine. It was a little, you know, 25 year old Alex would have been bummed out, but 32 year old Alex is like, no, I don't, you know, those are Colin's skills that he's nurtured and he's taken the time to really sharpen. I haven't done that. I've honed other skills. You know exactly what you are talented at too. Like you said, the rhythm thing, you, you know, not just on drums, but on bass too. That rhythm thing is in your blood. And so developing that talent into real skills is something you've been able to successfully move into a career, whereas maybe you don't have the same gifts as Colin, and that's okay. Colin is extremely gifted when it comes to finding combinations of of genres and sounds that nobody would have you wouldn't have thought to hear them together. Like that's what I've noticed on a lot of his recordings is that you know how when people blend styles, sometimes it just comes off really stupid or like they're trying too hard or just doesn't always work. There's something about when he does it that it's like sounds obvious. Like yeah, obvious as in how did someone not think of this before? Like that's such it makes so much sense and that's a ser- that's a serious gift. Yeah, he's got gifts that I don't think he's even realized he has yet. Um, and I mean, there would be, and I think that's a big part of, his, obviously it's a major part of his success, but I know that there would be nights, and I think why we got along so well was like, we'd go and listen to like a Peter Gabriel track from So, and then right after go to like something, the new uh, Khalid shit, and he'd be able to hone in on what was special about both of those things. And these are things that I've listened to a million times, and I didn't even catch it. But you know, I, I think that's what makes him a serious, serious talent. It's like, oh, we should take this from this track from '85, and maybe we can use this thing from this track that was released two weeks ago, and put it together, and then we'll have this thing that's really, really cool. It's 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 the under the, the deep molecular understanding of music that yeah. that that's his gift. And how it works together. Totally. But he's not just that. He's not successful because of only that. Like, for instance, we both know that he has worked his ass off for years and that he's had other careers building up to this. But there's something else that I've noticed from, you know, we're kind of like slowly becoming friends. And like we, we got along real great on the podcast and then... You know, he came to the summit because um, he was in town and we hung out. And we've, you know, every time we talk on the phone, we have a business objective, but then we just end up talking for like an hour anyways. And so getting to know him. And one thing I'm realizing, and this also ties into earlier on this episode, is he knows exactly who he is. like, mm-hmm. And he knows exactly who he's not. And he knows, for instance the metal thing and how metal records are created, that's not him at all. And he knows it and he will, he can explain in detail how that's not him. Um, and it's great to know that. It, and it's relevant because a lot of the bands he works with could go 
in a more hyper metal direction, they could. They have the, I mean, maybe not Dashboard Confessional, but the bands that he does work with, a lot of them that you're known for, a metal producer could work with them too, you know, and take them in one direction. We could have done another Gent record with Hands Like Houses. We didn't. We did a pop rock record. That's what they wanted. That's what the label wanted. And that's why they hired Colin. And then, you know, because they didn't yeah. want another. I mean, maybe that's what the fans wanted. <laughs> but, you know, that's not what anyone, that's not what the band wanted. They didn't, you know. Or that Papa Roach could have been, I mean, I know Papa Roach are chameleons and they've changed their styles many times, but they have a, a Papa Roach, I guess, sound in a way that has always remained consistent and hasn't gone in certain directions. But the stuff I heard with Colin, somehow it still has the Papa Roach sound in that you know it's them and it seems natural for them to be doing what's on that record. But there's stuff on there that I have never heard them do before that I never would have expected to ever hear them do. And it sounds incredible. Yeah, it sounds totally genuine. See, that's a gift. That that part's a gift. But everything else is hard fucking work and a personality that jives well with other people and smarts. And he's always thinking two, three years ahead of where he's at. Like, he's not, I mean, he, obviously he's concerned about what's coming next week, but for him, the constant goal is always two, three years away. Yeah, and he's not, and he's not afraid to turn something down in the short term if it will hurt him in the long term. He's very, which is again back to what we were saying earlier about uh, be defining who you are and thinking of or thinking about the little pride versus big pride. He's very, very good at putting off the temporary pride for the bigger win. I think his father is a very successful. Uh, ophthalmologist runs his own company. I, I think that was ingrained from his dad. I think it's Colin's natural uh, genetical genetic predisposition to think like that. And I think it was also nurtured by his family that you're always thinking two years ahead. You're always thinking five years ahead. And uh, yeah, I mean, that's what Susan said to me before I, mo I moved out to LA. She goes, you know, I called her. It was so funny, the whole situation with me coming out to L.A. The decision was made in like three days. Colin called me on a Monday and said, come out. I want you out here. Help me make my records. Um, a room opened up in the same steakhouse, the same studio. Let me know. And within three days, I had sent my deposit. And I guess, well, I guess I'm moving to L.A. in six weeks. Um, <laughs> so, And then I called Susan during that time. And I was like, hey, if this doesn't work out, like... You know, yada, yada. She goes, promise me this. Give L.A. three to five years. Give it three to five years. Think, plan ahead as far as you can. And then if it doesn't work out in three to five years, we'll talk. It's like, all right. So I just kind of jumped in with both feet. And yeah, I think that's what makes him so strong is, you know, he'll be uncomfortable now to know that because he knows that in, in two years he'll be where he wants to be. And that's what, really what this, it's a war of attrition. Like as, as I get older, and I guess you could say I'm semi-retired from it now, but the amount of people I've seen doing it, it tapers. And as, as you go higher, it gets even narrower. It's not like a, a linear thing. It's like a pyramid. But with like it super thick at the bottom, and as you get to the top, it's, almost, it's more like the Eiffel Tower, you know? As you get higher and higher and higher, it's narrower and narrower, and it stays narrow. You know, it's it's not like an even keel thing of it. Like you can see people dropping off, 
the very top is it's super tall, but it's very, very narrow. And uh, yeah, it really is kind of a just who can be uncomfortable the longest and, and Absolute, really, absolutely. really fight for for being there. Um, it was it, it's, that's funny. Uh, the only you know, I always think of that last line in that movie Blow is my ambition always far away my talent. I, you know, I was just, I knew I had a certain level of talent and I've, I've worked with people, you know, obviously worked with people that are way more talented than me. I was just able to like to outlast them. And, uh, I think it comes from mountain biking. I used to write this thing on my bike when I was doing some racing and stuff, uh, too tough to die, too stupid to quit. (laughs) And that was always kind of the adage of like, no, I'll just, I can be uncomfortable for longer, but I'm going to sit there and hone my skills. Uh, you know, I had a buddy said to me, I was like, I remember in college, you know, we were always out partying and stuff and you were sitting in your room fucking with snare samples. It's like, well, you know, it just kind of paid off. So it did. I, I totally agree about the benefit of being able to suffer more. Like, for instance, something I did uh, when my band was trying to get a record deal was I printed up 25,000 copies of our two-song EP to hand out. And what I mean by that is that I did it on a CD burner. (laughs) First, I started on the CD-ROM drive in my computer, and then I got, like, one that had, you know, you put the CD at the top, and then it burns the one in the bottom. And for it was, like, a... 2x speed then I got a 4x then I got one that had like four burners at 4x and uh and yeah and then I would print up the the label that goes on it mm-hmm. and stick it on the CD get that cracked version of toast <laughs> yeah I don't remember what I did but point being 25,000 25,000 and I'm not exaggerating um And, you know, sometimes some people helped me. They'd stay up all night and, like, they would stamp the label on while I do the burning or whatnot. But 25,000. And it took a couple years or three years. Um, And then we would go to, like, a Slayer show with two backpacks full with, like, a thousand and just give out a thousand in, like, two minutes Mm -hmm. and we'd be done. Um, But the other bands I knew who were doing that. They they pushed out after like two thousand CDs. Like I just kept going and going and going, and uh, yeah, and my tolerance for enduring pain is pretty high. That's what I'm noticing is yeah, just the uh, ability to you know suffer in happiness almost. Yeah, it goes back to our previous like what makes you happy, and I think you you can attain a, 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 such a high level of discomfort knowing that what you're doing is is going to pay off even even if it doesn't you got to just know that like this is going to suck for now but if i can just get through this it'll totally work out and every time i've done that it's always somehow paid off it's just such like obvious clichés that we've heard a million times but don't really resonate until it's like worked out is like anything that's worth doing is hard or whatever the old adage is, and it's totally true. It's it's totally uh, true, and it sounds so just like repetition of the same old cliches. But you know, 
Just they're cliches for a reason. Yeah. And you don't want it to go to bed at my biggest fear is like going to bed at night and knowing what if. Like what what if I had done this? My girlfriend, she's like, when you sleep, you're dead. You're out. The only way, because I battled with insomnia too, was working myself to the bone and and then knowing that there's no ever I did everything in my power that I knew how to do to the best of my ability. And if it didn't work out, it didn't work out. I tried. I'm kind of jealous of your ability to sleep because uh, I have frequent nightmares and I scream in my sleep and have conversations. And uh, yeah, the uh, night, some, night terrors. Some, some, yeah, sometimes I had to sleep in a different room from my girl just because of how loud I am and uh, the screaming. But uh, but you know, so I want to key in on something you just said about feeling good about letting go of something if you put the effort in. So I think another thing, in addition to being able to endure more pain, is knowing, first of all, it's how you deal with failure and how you approach it, too. Because we're all going to have failures, all of us. There's no single person on earth who has not fucked up at some point in time. And in addition to fucking up, there's sometimes where you don't, necessarily fuck up but a something just isn't right the circumstances yeah you yeah. can't control that you, you get drive yourself mad and go crazy over the things you can control yeah you know that was my therapist and you know i've got family that are in program in aa and you know it's part of that i'm not a religious person but you control the things you can control and everything else you just at a certain point you gotta let go Absolutely, but also there's certain things that just aren't right, and uh, or that won't work out. And you know, this brings up something that you and me did together that I want want to bring up: uh, Metal Beard Club. Mm-hmm. So, for people who are not aware of this, of uh, me, Alex, and this really smart dude named uh, Sean, uh, had a company briefly, uh, briefly meaning a few years. Uh, called Metal Beard Club, and we made, well, Sean made the beard oil, but uh, yeah, it was like beard oil and balm and stuff, and actually, I maintain that it's the best quality stuff I've ever used. I still um, do, too. I've tried some yeah. other stuff, and I hate it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Whatever Sean, Sean did, man. Sean figured it out, and the thing that was interesting, too, was that when I first started working with you guys, because you guys had it for like a year or something before it came on, it wasn't that good. Um, he got a lot better. And like at first, honestly, I, I was like, this kind of kind of smells bad. And, but then over time, meaning, and by over time, I mean pretty quickly, uh, he just upped his game. And so we have this company. The product is amazing. We then rebranded it. Um, the rebranding was amazing. We got like a commercial done, which is fucking awesome. Uh, you know, it, we had a good website, like all that stuff. Even ran some ads and got a Facebook group. Like we were doing the stuff, but we could never get it to turn the corner. And there's a few things uh, that I've thought about. Uh, why that didn't work out, and there's you tell me if um, if you think I'm wrong. But so I think first of all, uh, me and you, and I don't, I, I'm not going to say this about Sean because he uh, he did his part as far as work 
goes that he made all the he made all the fucking oil. He was the but, glue uh, that held it together yeah, for as long as it did. Totally. But my company URM was taking off, and you know when it, we started URM, when we started working together in Middle Beard Club, URM was kind of in its infancy. So it was it it, it already started getting bigger, but like. It was still maybe 25% the size that it is now and still growing. And so my my schedule just did not permit for, you know, putting the energy into something that has to get off the ground. So for me, that was number one. And I know that with you, you were in a bunch of transitions and then you finally... You know, you move from one place, move to another, the studio burns down, then you're in Missouri, <laughs> then you're in New York, then you're back in Missouri, then you're in LA. Like, you're going through some constant transitions, and le- and, but leveling up in your production career every step of the way. So, you know, every time you think you're almost out of the game, you would level up in a bigger way. And obviously, you need to make that your priority. And then you land this Bob's Burgers thing, um, which is like the dream gig. And so how are you going to put the energy into a company that needs that? So you can't start a company part-time. Like I think that people who say that you can are full of shit and they're just trying to sell you a product, um, the uh, like an information, inspirational product. Like you can't do this shit part-time. You, I mean... You can have another job while you're doing it, but you're going to need to work from 7 p.m. till 2 a.m. You know, every night on the other business in order to get it off the ground. Me and you are not capable of doing that because our our main gigs were just way too uh, way too demanding. And then on top of that, I honestly don't think that any of us, the three of us, were even that passionate about metal and beards. So like I know Sean doesn't even like metal. You like metal to like you said uh you like metal if it's good, but you're not like a metal head and like I I mean I'm the most metal out of the three of us, but like even I'm not like a metalhead metalhead like I used to be. And yeah. like I certainly I mean, I've had a beard since I was 16, but I really don't care about beard culture. So uh, I, I don't identify with groups or things like that. Like, that's not me. And so I had a real hard time throwing myself into it because that beard culture thing is not who I am. I think what I learned is that if you're going to start a company, um, un- unless you're just like a venture capitalist and it's it's that's all you do and you're able to put that hat on um, especially with a more of a culture brand that metal beard club was I think you have to be ingrained in that culture and live that culture hundred percent the way we talk about audio and music and not just metal but just music in general and the the, the craft of making records like you and I could talk about that for hours I, I don't know if I could yeah Talk about beards and, and and beards and metal for hours. I I could not, and there are, but there are people who can. There are people That's who can. It, you know, we never. I think that was a big thing for me was the connection to. I, I thought we had a great product business wise. Sean set us up brilliantly with the website and the way every everything logistically was in place. I, I really think that 
I had an issue, and it, it didn't until it failed. I, it took me some real, again, holding the mirror up and conversations with Sean. Um, I just didn't connect with it the way I thought I would. I mean, I love certain metal bands. Like in my studio, I've got like you know the, the Converge stuff up and. But, uh, you know, I don't get psyched on, like, oh, look, look at this 91 Pantera video. Like, okay, that, no, that's great. It's cool. But, like, that's, we needed someone like that, you know, that went yep. to the beard competitions, lived, breathed, ate, slept, the beard culture and the metal culture. And even with our powers combined, I don't think, I think we had kind of a not a great, just from a marketing, you and I, because... Uh, Voltron of metal beards. <laughs> you know what I mean? I, I had a beard. You have your beard. We like the product. I, I just don't think we were able to connect with people on a visceral level. And I think consumers are smarter than we give them credit for. And I think maybe they sniff that in because there was no personality. There was no like call to action kind of guy that was on yeah. there every single day like you guys were with URM. With, you know, you, there wasn't a Joel who like could rally the troops. You know what I mean? Yeah. And you know what's interesting, though, is we have, between the three of us, we had all the all the other ingredients. Like, you had the copy down. I could set up all the marketing, technically. Um, and I know all the strategies and tactics to make it work. But And Sean created a great product and set up the business. And we had all that minus... The human connection. Yeah, the connection. And so... And that can't be faked. And exactly right about URM. Uh, the reason, well, not the reason, there's lots of reasons, but the thing that URM had always and still does is that the people who run it, we know we know what we're talking about. And like we are, we're a part of that world. And we have been a part of that world for years, years and years. Like this is, we made something for our world that we knew our world needed. And it was something you got excited about, you know? Yeah, I still do get excited about it. And I never have gotten excited about beards, ever. Like, I like having a beard. Like, I like beards, yeah. but I don't like them that much. Um, like, I don't care about them. I don't give a fuck if some dude has a beard or not. Like, I've never gone up to a guy and been like, sweet beard bro like I've never done that I've had a bunch of people come up to me and do it so my thinking was everybody compliments my beard maybe I should get paid for it <laughs> that's that was my that was my thinking it's kind of weird that if you go into a business with obviously with uh, let me rephrase that if you go into a culture type business with just the mindset of like how can I flip a profit it's gonna fail Yep. Like if you're going into a culture based business, you need to be about that culture 110%. Absolutely. 100%. If you're, do, like I said, if you're doing tech or if you're doing investing, where, but even if you look at people that are in the tech world, the guys that are making it, they are like robotics. The founders. The founders, they like robotics. They love robots. They live, breathe, eat, sleep robots. They want to program stuff, AI. Like that's all they talk about, the ethos of it, the, you know. We were just like, cool. We like metal. We like beards enough. We have beards. It can go together. Yeah, we let's see if we can make some some money. And it, it wasn't like, oh my god, let's do this for the culture of metal and let's bring this and maybe the beard stuff will come along with it. And I, I think that's at least for me. I, th I think that's 
that was kind of where we missed the mark. I could write funny shit for it all day. And it was funny. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Um, but I, I think the people in the groups kind of knew that. You know, there's that company, the the Bearded Warrior. I forget the name, but they are run by ex-Marines and ex- and they they had the culture down because they had a mission statement that they were passionate about, which was donating to like Wounded Warrior. And they had beards, and that's a big part of military culture. And I, I think they just lived, obviously, that was a big part of them. You know, another good example is Black Rifle Coffee Company. Um, right. They are perfect. Uh, you're saying, yeah, they do Wounded Warrior, but they're a company by military people that is marketed for military people and everything about it is congruent their messaging their employees like they everything and you know that they live for that shit they that i mean these are all vets um a lot of them combat vets like this is this is a real thing for them and yeah. and the audience or the the customer base knows that like they know it's legit and that's part of why you know and obviously their products really good and they know how to market and so all those logistical and business things you know all those boxes are checked off but they have the most important thing which is product market fit URM has product market fit and uh, that product market fit is everything and so metal beard club almost had product market fit uh, because there is a way to do, I still believe there is a way to do uh, beard stuff for metal people. However, we weren't the people to do it because we didn't fit right the the market. Even with our backgrounds, like making yes. hev- making heavy music, being a part of that whole scene. You know, we're not at every single metal show, regardless of who's playing, just pimping. We didn't, and we didn't have anyone going to beard competitions and like a. You know, in a in a fucking Demi Bourgier shirt, repping the yep. company. You know what I mean? So, exactly right. And that you know that would be the person who would be making the videos every day. And, and if we're talking like total from a business standpoint, you need like you need that voice. You need that person who's the identity of the company. That, yeah, absolutely. That, that everyone can fall in line behind. And us popping in on the Facebook group to regulate some nonsense or like make jokes or engage with people. It was it seemed very detached. Even now, looking back on it, you know, it I was mean, detached. There was no face to it, and I think in 2019, you need a face to your company, you know, like an actual human. Especially again, going to a culture-based company, you need a face. You need you need a personality. So yeah, I, I man, think that's where we missed totally. it. I don't think I was the right person to do it. I know you didn't want to do it and didn't feel you were the right person either. Um, Sean said that he didn't feel comfortable doing it. Um, I think we maybe have looked over that fact, you know, maybe because we'd all put a pretty significant chunk of change in and Sean had put God knows how many hours perfecting it. I think we have a great product, yeah, but now we uh, we know and you know now, if, you know, if, I, I'm sure if you start another company, which knowing you, there's probably 15 ideas on your plate. You now know from the mistakes that you we made with Metal Beard Club what not to do. The funny thing is I already did kind of know that stuff. But sometimes when you're in it, it's hard to see it. And that to me is the biggest lesson. So to me, the lesson isn't you need product market fit. Like I already knew that. And I would preach that to people. But the lesson was that 
you need to be doing this self-evaluation thing that we talked about earlier. Um, you know, whether you do the future authoring suite or you find another way to do it, whether you're a Scientologist or something and you go get clear, I don't know. <laughs> like, no, but I'm saying you need to, you need to get self critical and do the self evaluation thing for every aspect of your life. And uh, every time that there's something new that you're going to take on, y- you need to think about these things critically because really, what the big problem with Metal Beard Club is that it went on too long. And it went on too long because we weren't being honest with ourselves. And the reason I wasn't being honest with myself is because I wanted to have a side hustle because I was seeing myself as an entrepreneur who uh, and the entrepreneur curse. And I do really believe this. And uh, I have to thank my best friend, Finn McKenty, who's also our director of marketing at URM, for helping me break out of this mindset. But you know, entrepreneurs, their curse is that they try to do too much. Mm-hmm. Uh, like they will, they will frequent, and this is true for the most successful ones or ones just starting out. Is they think that they can do everything, and so they, you know, they try to do way too much instead of taking the thing that's working and putting all their entrepreneurial energy into making that thing huge. And then once it's huge and you either sell it or you can move out of operations, then you find something else you can do. Or you get a side hustle that actually is only a few hours per week uh, and is like consulting or something like that. Something where it's a service and you can provide it and then it's done. Like I know somebody who is a very, very high up at um, some labels and he also has a management gig that he runs. Mm-hmm. And the reason that works is because uh, the there's very clear parameters for the management thing and it's just a service he's providing. So it's not like he has to develop a product and a supply chain and like all this shit. Yeah, it's, uh, sorry to interrupt, but yeah, you're fighting a war on all sides, but you don't know where like the line of demarcation is. So you're just constantly pushing and the only way for it to be successful is to constantly be pushing. Yes, exactly. There's no like finite, like, okay, if we get to here, this happens. Like when our respected career choices, we know how much we have to put in to hit a certain mark. There was no mark. We were looking for a light switch in a fucking windowless room. Yeah, and I will say that even with URM, there's a little bit of an element to that because maybe the light is on in the room, but we're constantly trying to expand that room into darkness that surrounds it. So like, there's still an element to that. And so if you're already fighting that one war, you can't just fight another one too. I mean, you can do a few side battles, Yeah, but... They have to be very limited in scope, and they can't rob you of resources, and they need to play right along with what you're doing. And so, you know, I know too many entrepreneurs who have one thing that worked out, and so then they want to start 20 businesses, and that's a recipe for disaster. And Finn helped me see that, and it got me in line. And now... uh I am doing URM exclusively. Now, I do have a couple other things in the works, but the couple other things in the works are things that 
are very much in line with what I'm already doing. And they'll make me better at what I'm already doing. And they're very low impact. Like I don't have to start a company, like a fucking starting a company, it, like from zero to to like even 25% of what URM does is a lot of fucking work. Oh, you can't. God. You can't do that. Plus, have another company that's uh, that requires your full attention. So you know, and so the reason I wanted to talk about this though is because you know it kind of brings our conversation full circle in that that self awareness of what your gifts are and what makes you happy and what you truly want in life and how what you wanted at one point might not be what you want now and how you do have to be able to uh, walk on things that aren't right and how you do need to just learn what you can from these failures. That Metal Beard Club experience for me kind of just sums that all up. It really does. Yeah. I'm really happy we did it. Yeah. I think, you know, you, I, you spoke about this with Susan and I, I think in, in you know, in our current place where everything you do is for the world to see or you just want people to see certain things to make yourself look better. I think people have sometimes, they kind of don't look at themselves enough other than through this Instagram window and be like, okay, well, this is who I am. Is this persona I put on social media and they're miserable. And I think you got to be, find out what like makes you happy and just go with that. Even if it's not like great content, who cares? You know, and I didn't realize that until like maybe this year with kind of stepping back from the music thing and, this idea that I created of myself, of what I was going to be and who I was going to be and all this shit that I had talked myself up over over a decade of doing it. And I've had success and I, you know, and I wasn't as happy as I thought I would be getting the things that I that I wanted for so long. Um, so when the animation thing came along, I mean, I get, I'm obviously talking from just personal experience. I'm way happier now than I think I've ever been, even with, you know, billboard records and all this shit going on and all these great bands that I've gotten to work with, I'm happier now. You know, I, I go to Bob's, I'm still mixing records full time, not full time, but, um, and man, I'm pumped. And it took a long time to get there and figure in a lot of self-examination. I'm happy I was able to do it at 32 and not 52. You know, and I think just sit with yourself, turn your phone off and sit with yourself and think just even if it's 20 minutes a day, and, and examine what makes you happy. If it's making records and being that guy, do it. If it's you know sitting on the couch with your girlfriend every night, do it. Or you know if it's knitting, fucking do it. Figure out a way to do it. You know I like mountain biking. I'm gonna do that again. I went yesterday. It was miserable. I had a great time. I was coughing up blood, but goddamn was I happy. Coughing up blood, huh? I'm out of shape, man. <laughs> <laughs> I'm very out of shape. Okay, so, uh, you know, coughing up blood. Uh, I'm <laughs> glad you're alive. Yeah, no, I'll be fine. I just got to get rid of my bitch tits and everything will be okay. <laughs> yeah, you know, um, I'm going to say I think this is a good place to uh, to end the episode. I think we kind of came full circle, but uh, I'm proud of everything you've done, and I really hope that uh, people listening who are trying to level up or at a crossroads in their career or just not sure what they want to do uh, or, you know, unhappy in 
their career or you know they have that voice telling them that something's got to change i really hope that they take this as an inspiration to find some method to honestly examine themselves and i mean it, the reason I, I suggest doing a method that already exists you know like i mentioned the self authoring suite or getting a psychologist like whatever it is mm-hmm. but the reason that it's good to use a method is because if you've never done this before, you may not ask the right questions. And this is all about holding the mirror up to yourself is all about asking the right questions because the right questions will get you the right kind of answer. Um, and some, if we don't know what the right questions are, we could ask ourselves things that it's easy to, I guess, give yourself an embellished answer that gives you... Uh, you know, an answer that might be in line with what you hope it is, but not what it really is. Yeah. So I think it, leaving yourself open to opportunities that w- maybe weren't in your original game plan and then realizing you're way happier with the way things turned out. You know, if I had never moved to LA, I w- may, I'd still be fighting for records in New York and not have progressed. You just got to take those risks and always be looking at yourself as objectively as possible, even if you don't like what you see. You know, I I know we're about to end this, but let me tell you about something really funny on topic that just happened. Mm. So somebody contacted me that I haven't spoken to in 10 years recently. They want to start a podcast and they asked me for some pointers. And I normally don't just take phone calls, actually. Um, I keep my phone ringer off at all times, but I didn't talk to him in 10 years, and sure, why not? Let's do it. Let's catch up, and uh, I'll tell you how to start a podcast. But um, I'm not too sure how aware he is of what URM does Mm -hmm. uh, all the way. Like I'm not sure he understands the scope of it, but he knows that I have a podcast that's doing well. And that's why he wanted to talk about podcasts. And he knows me from the band days and stuff back in those days. And he asked me how music's going. And I was like, I don't do that anymore. He's like, come on, you got to do it a little. And I was like, no, I don't do it at all. I haven't actually played guitar in three years. And he's like, nah, man, like you're hurting me by saying that. You were so good. And I was like, well, I'm flattered you say that, but... Because uh, you're crushing his dreams. <laughs> yeah, but like, I, I don't want to do it anymore, and I haven't wanted to do it in a long time. He's like, yeah, but how you don't have like that... What? Like, it was kind of like... It, he like he didn't believe what I was saying to him. Like He had a hard time with it. And that identity we have, that we define ourselves as, that's another reason that it's scary to redefine yourself because it's not just you. Um, I mean, look, we all say that we don't care what other people think, but we do. We oh, all care what other people think. Mm-hmm. You can't avoid it. Um, you are human in society. And, you know, some people care too much what other people think, but we are aware of other people's opinions of us and what we're doing. And shit, it's important. Like what other people think of you will make a difference in whether or not you get certain opportunities or 
You know, the girl says yes when you ask her to marry you. What she thinks of you matters. So, like, there are times where what other people matter think really does matter. And I think that that's why when we're talking about this self-examination thing, you might ask yourself the wrong questions because you're afraid of an answer that will make you do something that could get a weird reaction from the people you care about. So I know that it was scary for me and this, I got into a long depression over it that I'm actually, the bad effects of the depression, I'm just now starting to get over. But like it started when I, it started because I, a crisis of self, uh, self-definition, I guess. And yeah. there part of it was that what will, you know, what am I if I'm not a guitar player? And how are people going to react? Are they going to take me seriously? Like, you know, all these weird, stupid fears. And uh, I'm much happier now. I'm really glad I did that. And fuck anyone who has a problem with it. However, it was just fascinating to me that, first of all, that, it's, that he didn't know that I don't do it anymore. But second of all, it's just like, that's what I'm talking about. Like, that reaction is what scares a lot of people. Like, People are afraid of hearing, but you're so talented. What, like, I think that's that's what I was projecting on one, you know, talking to telling people I was kind of semi retiring from making records, you know, that the thing I was in my head. But I, I think people need to realize it's not, you know, you're not defined by what you do, you're defined on how you do it. So the same kid that was burning 25,000 fucking copies of a CD is now building this business. It's just, it's just different. You're not doing the same thing, but the way you're going about it is the same way, and I think that's what's going to make you successful. That's what I tried to tell him. Was like, dude, he's like, but don't. What about creative stuff? And I was like, I do creative stuff. Like, this thing I do now did not exist at one point in time. I created it, mm -hmm. and uh, I'm creating stuff for it all the time. He's like, yeah, but it's different. I was like, it's actually not different. Um, for me, it's not different. I get the same exact feeling I did with uh, writing music and getting better guitar as I do when I do this stuff. And I'm not kidding. I really do get that same creative fulfillment. And it's not for somebody else to tell me what gets me fulfilled. And I am rather, like, I, I don't get, like, it doesn't bother me emotionally anymore because I've done a lot of thinking about this. But so, like, somebody having that reaction used to scare me. Um, and it used to make me want to hide myself and not tell them the truth about who I was, but I had to get over it, and I did. I know that for a lot of people who are going to go do the self-examination that that could come up, and it's really, really scary. But as someone who has gone through that transition, I say, do it. Um, and if you discover that your path is true, like, you know, you want to keep playing guitar or you want to be a producer, more power to you. Do it. Most of my best friends are great producers and they are so talented and great at what they do. And just because doing that isn't what I love doing doesn't mean that they can't do that. In fact, my company needs them to. Yeah. So, Please keep doing it. Yeah. <laughs> I need yeah, your content. Don't, <laughs> yeah. Don't, don't, don't stop. That also brings to light another thing of you don't want people in your life that don't think like, not like the way you do, but have the big picture kind of mindset. Like the way you're telling this dude, and I, I don't mean to attack him personally or anything, but him saying, oh, you're giving up the dream. Maybe that's not the right person to keep in your circle. You want people where you say, 
I'm doing this thing. I'm focusing on it like this. This is what I get of it. You want the, they should, the right personality or the right person for me would be like, that's fucking brilliant. Are you getting the same fulfillment? Yes. Go for it. Are you happy? Yes. Run at that. Is it, is it the same dream you had 15 years ago? No, but they understand that. They know, understand things change and you just got to put the people around you that understand that. I have that now. Uh, back in December, I had to do something that was very, very risky, for instance, just a, an example. Um, I can't say what it was, but That's I had fine. to do something that was very risky that could have changed everything. Um, like it could have changed everything. There was that risk to it, but it had to be done. Um, and it was the best thing for everything. And everybody agrees, and especially now. But when I told some of the closest people to me, like my parents and my girl that I'm doing this, they looked at me like I was a little crazy, but they all said, we trust you. Um, if this is what you're going to do, we support you because you tend to know what it is you should be doing. It seems crazy to us and scary to us, but we trust you and we have your back. That's way cooler. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. Took a while to get to this point, but uh, but that's, you know, those you should be surrounding yourself with people who, you know, who have your back. Yeah. And ending on a Susan note, slow growth is the best growth. I totally agree. Totally. Well, Alex, thank you wow. for doing this. I, I know that we totally tried this episode a couple of months ago and it failed. So <laughs> I'm glad I'm glad that we redid it. This and uh I think it turned out way better. Fuck yeah. So and yeah, pleasure speaking with you as always. Yeah, man. Well uh come to LA soon, we'll go to another comedy show. I'm gonna be in LA in August. All so right. Well uh, see you then. I'll get the tickets. The Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast is brought to you by Jay-Z Microphones. For over a decade, Jay-Z Microphones has combined all the critical elements of world-class microphone manufacturing, patented capsule technology, precision electronics, and innovative industrial design. Jay-Z Microphones' deep understanding of technology is informed by their open-minded, innovative approach. Trust us, sound can be glorious. Recording. For more info, please go to jzmike.com. To ask us questions, make suggestions, and interact, visit urm.academy and press the podcast link today. <laughs>